With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com In the early 1900s, realistic depictions of life for African Americans were hard to come by. Decades of minstrel shows and racist caricatures distorted the picture. But in 1926, North Carolina playwright Paul Green wrote a play that was surprising for its time. It was called In Abraham's Bosom. It featured a southern black man named Abraham McCraney. He was raised on a farm in North Carolina with aspirations to start a school and educate black children. But to achieve his dream, Abe had to deal with his own racial identity in a hostile world. The play won a Pulitzer Prize for drama in 1927, saw success on Broadway, and never produced in the South. Now, a staged reading brings Abe's story back to North Carolina. It takes place this Monday, 7 o'clock, at the Paul Green Theater in Chapel Hill. And I'm joined now by Reginald Hildebrand. He's a professor of African-American studies and history at UNC Chapel Hill and will co-lead a discussion throughout uh, that event uh, on Monday. Reg, welcome back. Good to have you here. Good to be back, Frank. Also with us is Lawrence Avery, who helped organize the reading and co-leads the discussion. Lawrence, welcome. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Tell us more about this play that Paul Green wrote in 1926. Well, it grew out of a, a incident he had as a child. He grew up on a farm in Harnett County, and his father, for some reason, was took took him along to a train station. And uh, Paul, still a little boy, saw this uh, class of black students from Durham with the well-dressed teacher get off the train. The kids were getting a little impatient, and so the teacher came around to one of the fellows working on on the train, had an oil can and so forth, and uh, the teacher just asked him, when will the train take off? And the Confederate soldier in the uh, in the railroad worker uh, flared up, and he threw oil on the white shirt of this well-dressed uh, uh, teacher. And uh, the teacher said, "Well, look, Captain, you've done ruined my shirt," and went back to his kids. And that made a lasting impression on Paul. Here, this well-dressed, uh, dignified teacher being mistreated by this. Uh, grungy uh, railroad mechanic just because of his race, uh, and that stayed with him. And 
over the years that uh, and other a lot of other incidents but that's the one Paul himself recounts uh led him to write this play about uh, a mulatta who identifies as a black person uh who who sees the importance of education uh and and yet doesn't have the uh, uh abilities to relate to other human beings uh, very well Though his ideals are wonderful, uh, his achievements uh, fall far short of that. And uh, uh, in the end, he's lynched, assassinated, and shot. He does. Uh, he starts a school. Uh, he has to leave to start that school, but his anger gets the better of him. And in the process, he is struggling with his own identity. Yeah, he chastises some of the black students who are misbehaving or not working hard. And so their parents uh, don't like him either, uh, and they're... Uh, then when he the second time he tries to start a school they boycott it and uh, just don't let him don't let him start a school the second time Reginald Hildebrand give us a sense of what it was like Paul Green to write this play he's from North Carolina Harnett County North Carolina in 1926 he writes this play what's the context here uh, i guess my question is how unlikely is it that a play like this would come from a man with that background it is striking that uh, Paul Green was able to perceive these uh, issues and these characters in complex human terms. It's very easy to reduce these to abstractions that are stereotypes for one side or the other or in one view of, or, or another. And that uh, just, I mean, it sounds fairly straightforward, but to be able to see these people as human beings engage with issues that are related to race uh, was was striking. The play is done in 1926. It was only in 1921 that the Division of Negro Education was established in uh, North Carolina, and uh, only in 1918 that uh, secondary schools were established, and then most of them, and there were only a few, and they were for just one or two years. Du Bois once said that uh, the White South believed that a educated Negro was a dangerous Negro, and he said that the South was not wholly wrong about that. And uh, so this became this theme of education as a way of of lifting people and prying open the lid that kept them down uh, was one of the themes that he saw and dealt with uh, extraordinarily well during that period. So, Lawrence Avery, tell, tell us about the play's success on Broadway. It opened in late 1926 and ran into the early weeks of uh, uh, 27. It didn't really have a long run, but it quickly attracted uh, lots of attention, and people were uh, already speculating that here might be the Pulitzer Prize drama for 1927. And that generated a lot of interest in North Carolina. I mean, no, no North Carolina writer had uh, ever been mentioned in connection with a Pulitzer. Uh, the play closed. Then a, a few weeks later, it was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. And so the company reestablished its production. And uh, and then after another lay, layoff, it uh, was produced again and was taken on tour in the northern part of the country. Uh, 
But down in North Carolina, as I said, it attracted a lot of attention. Uh, newspaper articles uh, proliferated about about it even before it won the Pulitzer. And then after it did win the Pulitzer, uh, people paid attention to it. And uh, up in the next decade, in 1934, uh, a World War I veteran, as as Green was, uh, was a sh- black sharecropper up around uh, Roxborough. And uh, he and his the fellow who owned the farm uh, were at cross purposes and just as in this play they uh, f- the white owner of the farm tried to take over the share of the crop that belonged to the tenant farmer and the tenant farmer shot him and killed him and he was tried for murder and and all the newspaper accounts alluded to the similarity between that incident and uh, Paul Green's play and by that time, Paul Green had become a very active uh, opponent of the death penalty, and Green tried to get him, well, tried to get him a new trial, but it didn't work, and he was actually executed. Pretty I shortly. want to talk more about Paul Green and his fortunes in, in North Carolina and this play, In Abraham's Bosom. But right now, I'd like to introduce one of the actors, Thomas I. McDonald, to this conversation. He's an actor in the stage reading. Thomas I., welcome to the program. Good to have you here. Thanks, Frank. What did you think about this this play? I mean, had you known much about it before you had a chance to do the stage reading? Well, I, I read it, Frank, about um, six months ago and was struck by uh, the lead character, Abraham McCranny, and how even though the play is set in the uh, late 1880s, 20 years after the Civil War, 1885 is its starting point, how relevant it, it, it was to some of the issues that, that are going on today. I, I was very struck by that and, and was struck by this uh, character, Abraham McCranny, who, who really placed such great emphasis on education and the efforts to rebuff that both by his own people and the greater uh, society and the racism of that time. Can I ask you to do a scene for us now? Sure. This is um, uh, uh, Mr. Avery had mentioned that Abe was rebuffed in his efforts to start a school twice. Uh, This is the speech that he intended to give um, uh, the, the second time. I think he was in Durham, North Carolina when he was, intended to give this. No, he was back home, actually, in Harnett County, and he intended to give this speech so <clears throat> that he never gave about the importance of education. Ignorance means sin, and sin means destruction, destruction before the law and destruction in a man's own heart. The Negro will rise when his character is of the nature to cause him to rise, for out for on that the future of the race depends, and that character is mostly to be built by education, for it cannot exist in ignorance. Let me repeat again, ladies and gentlemen, we want our children and our grandchildren to march on toward full lives and and noble characters, and that has got to come, I say, by education. We have no other way. We got to live and learn. And think, that's it. A few short years ago, the white man's power covered us like the night. Through war and destruction, we was freed. But it was freedom of the body and not freedom of the mind. 
And what is freedom of the body without freedom of the mind? It means nothing. It don't exist. What we need is thinking people, people who will not let the body rule the head. And again, I cry out, education. I've been accused of wanting to make the Negro the equal of the white man. Been run from pillar to post, living in poverty because of that belief. But it is false. I never preached that doctrine. I don't say that the colored ought to be made the equal to the white society now. We are not ready for it yet. But I do say that we have equal rights to education and free thought and living our lives. With that, all the rest will come. Them books there show it. Ladies and gentlemen, what's to hinder us from starting a great center of learning here, putting our time and our hope and money and labor into it and not into the much foolishness of this life? Why, what little education I got was by Lightwood Knots. And after reading and studying all these years, I am just a little ways along. We must give the children of the future a better chance than we have had. With this one school building, we can make a good start. Then we can get more teachers later on, more equipment, and someday a library where the boys and girls can read about men that have done something for the world. And before many years pass, we will be given instruction in how to farm, how to be carpenters, how to preach, how to teach, how to anything. And what will stop us in the end from growing into a great Negro college, a university, a light on a hill, a place, the pride of both black and white? That's actor Thomas I. McDonald performing from In Abraham's Bosom. My guests are Thomas I. McDonald, Lawrence Avery, and Reginald Hildebrand. Lawrence and Reginald co-lead a discussion during a staged reading of In Abraham's Bosom. It takes place Monday at Paul Green Theater in Chapel Hill. As your body grows bigger, your mind must flower. It's great to learn, because knowledge is power. It's schoolhouse rocking, but you're both enough. After Brown versus Board of Education officially desegregated schools in the Jim Crow South, activists wrestled with the question of how to do the same thing in the North. Northern segregation, many claim, though not official policy, was very real, partly the result of market and government-driven housing segregation. Many cities tried a solution that we now call busing, which was met with political backlash at all levels. From the legal technicalities in the Civil Rights Act to the anti-busing movement sensationalized by the news media, desegregation activists faced an uphill battle. These days, the battle to desegregate public schools continues in New York and around the country, but not through busing. Matthew Delmont is the author of Why Busing Failed, a new book, and he's here to talk about the challenges that desegregation faced in the North and the options that leaves us with today. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you for coming on. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You talk about three myths that sprung up around the question of desegregation in the North. Want to start by running down those three myths? Sure. Um, the first myth that we have to deal with when we're talking about the history of busing is the idea of de facto segregation. So the idea of de facto segregation would lead us to think that segregation in the North was innocent or somehow uh, less serious than it was in the South. 
And scholars over the last couple decades have produced books on New York, on Chicago, on Los Angeles that have shown us that segregation, both residential and school segregation, was the result of intentional choices uh, by both uh, government actors and private market forces that produced segregated schools and neighborhoods that we're still living with today. So that first myth is that de facto segregation um, was real when, in fact, segregation was usually intentional in the North. Um, The second myth is that the news media played a really positive role with regards to um, leading the nation to a better direction with regards to civil rights. So um, the story we like to tell about the relationship of news media and civil rights is focusing on the South. And television newspapers did do a great job of bringing the Southern civil rights movement to a national audience and forcing uh, people to confront uh, the issues of, silver, of uh, civil rights and racial segregation in the South. But when you look at the story on a national level, the news media was much more timid with regards to civil rights activism in the North. So they didn't treat issues like school segregation in New York with the same moral urgency that they did in Little Rock. And the final myth is that uh, busing was a thing that only started in the 1970s or it started in Boston. So busing as a word uh, actually gets created in New York in the 1950s as a way to oppose school desegregation. So when we talk about busing or talk about the battles over busing, what we miss is that that debate was about the constitutional rights of black students. And it's been a story that's been retold over and over again about the feelings and anger of, of white parents, particularly in South Boston. Where did busing come from as a policy push? Who is advocating that as the means of desegregating the schools? So initially it comes, you have civil rights activists in, in New York, elsewhere in the North, pushing for schools to do something to address the rampant school segregation that was going on in the city. So they weren't focused just on busing. They are looking for any, any means that could be done, um, redrawing school lines, uh, reallocating resources. And busing is sort of one tactic among many that they're advocating for. What actually ends up happening is, um, and New York is the starting place of this, the school board very reluctantly puts in place very small-scale programs to send a few hundred black and Puerto Rican students from overcrowded schools to uh, white schools, in this case in, in Queens in the late 1950s. And you have white parents protesting against this, uh, this policy, this way to try to relieve school overcrowding and relieve school segregation. So before busing even comes to the fore as a legitimate way to try to produce uh, large-scale school segregation, you have activists uh, latching onto this word as a way to oppose any efforts to bring uh, minority children into white schools. And I should say, that at this point, these are still one-way busing programs. So the, the white kids in, in Queens weren't going to be set anywhere. Just parents were already out in the streets protesting against busing because they were concerned about black and Puerto Rican students coming into their schools. We're talking about the histor- history of busing in New York and other northern cities as a failed desegregation policy with um, Arizona State University history professor Matthew Delmont. His new book is simply called Why Bussing Fails, subtitle, Failed, Why Bussing Failed, subtitle Race, Media, and the National Resistance to School Desegregation. The title of your book is in the past tense, Why Bussing Failed. Is this dead as policy in America? No, the the title was meant to address the fact that when I talked about my research with people over the last sort of five or six years, every time I would talk about, you know, I'm working on a book on the history of busing, people would sort of nod their heads and say, you know, it's too bad that that policy failed. And I wanted to try to address that head on. Because what I think happened is we agreed as a, as a nation that the policy failed without ever really trying it seriously. So the most famous example is Boston in the 1970s. It's the one that's in everyone's mind. It's the one that people always mention to me when I talk about my research. But the story starts two decades before that, and it starts all across the country. And busing as a, as a policy in the 1970s, even at its peak, was only ever moving about 5% of school children uh, to try to desegregate schools. So this was not a, a large-scale um, large effort. So I think 
by the title, Why Busing Failed, I'm trying to call attention to the fact that we never really tried this fully, but we've abandoned it as a policy. Um, when we look at the present, I think the things that people were trying to do in the 1960s and 70s won't work exactly today. But what I want people to take away is that we made a set of political choices with regards to school zoning lines, with regards to what kind of school segregation policies we would or would not accept. And we can revisit those choices. We can make a different set of choices now if we care about producing different types of school demographics or different types of educational opportunities. What was the language of those who were anti-busing? They didn't say explicitly or they didn't tend to say explicitly, at least not in public, I don't want my white kids going to school with black kids, Right. Exactly. And I think this is where the, that language of how you resist school desegregation in the North is very different than the South. So in the South, we have a very clear image of, of colored schools and white schools, colored drinking fountains and white drinking fountains. The language of racism in the North was much more subtle, um, but it produced equally serious outcomes. When parents wanted to push against school desegregation in cities like New York, they would say we're in favor of neighborhood schools or we're exercising our rights as parents, as mothers, as taxpayers to maintain the schools that we want to we want to have in our neighborhoods. That language sounds very powerful, but it produced the same set of segregated outcomes as what you saw going on in the South. And we see a lot of that same language today. So when we, the, no one talked about neighborhood schools before people were trying to desegregate those schools. Um, no one talked about their, their taxpayers' rights to schools before people were trying to desegregate those schools. And we still are left with that language today, but we don't understand the historical baggage that it comes with. And the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy, and a great deal of it is could some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. Joining me now, Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow. It's great to have you here. Um, Thank you. I'm a huge fan of that book, a uh, very important book. You did an event, a Bernie Sanders event, uh, mm -hmm. this morning. You wrote a piece for The Nation magazine called Why Hillary Clinton Doesn't Deserve the Black Vote. Are you endorsing Bernie Sanders? Well, I am definitely endorsing the political revolution. Um, I am reluctant to endorse any candidate, um, any Democratic candidate, any candidate in the current political system. I believe that we need to think very seriously, um, particularly as folks of color and progressives, about building either a new party or a new movement that can hold the Democratic Party accountable or provide a meaningful alternative. Um, but I could not be more thrilled um, with the movement that is arising um, all over this country to support the creation of a real democracy in the United States. Um, you know, I think Bernie Sanders is absolutely right to call for a political revolution. Uh, we don't have a real democracy today. Our politicians are, you know, pretending to serve two masters, the people who elect them and then the people who fund them. And unfortunately, for millions of people who cast their votes every year, um, they rightfully wonder whether their politicians are responding more to the people who fund their campaigns, um, including large pharmaceutical companies, big banks, payday lenders, private prison companies, um, than the people who have elected them. And, it's uh, interesting that you, 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 you talk about the sort of um, democratic problem with, with big money, because one of the, the areas that, that, that you have focused on, criminal justice, um, it strikes me as one of those areas where that's not really the story of what's happened, right? I mean, there are private prison interests, and they've played some role at the margins, but we basically constructed the largest prison state in the world uh, 
not because big business wanted it, but because a lot of really pretty ugly politics on the ground level. Yes, but I think the larger story about mass incarceration is really about how um, the interests of poor people and working people of all colors, how people are divided along racial lines in order to advance the interests of a privileged few. And that is really the story um, of American democracy since its founding, how the privileged few um, have used race as a way of driving a wedge um, between poor and working people uh, in order to advance their own interests. Um, it certainly was the case with slavery. It was certainly the case um, with Jim Crow. Jim Crow emerged in large part in response to a multiracial populist movement for economic justice. And those who were in favor of racial hierarchy and wanted to continue to exploit <laughs> the lower classes um, found that they could defeat this populist movement um, by disenfranchising African Americans and persuading poor and working class whites that um, they ought to, you know, preserve their racial supremacy right. uh, in our political system and abandon their black allies. And, you know, after uh, the civil rights movement, we saw similar dynamics emerging again with the backlash against the civil rights movement, creating a political environment where, once again, um, conservatives and you know former uh, segregationists were able to use kind of law and order, get tough on them rhetoric uh, in order to uh, defeat kind of the growing calls for poor people's campaign and uh, you know the evolution of the civil rights movement into a movement for broader economic justice. So, if the, if the antidote to that is building that kind of multiracial coalition. Um, I think one of the, the biggest critiques of Bernie Sanders' shortcomings is mm -hmm. the fact that, that he has had a hard time uh, building a multiracial coalition, that his supporters have been overwhelmingly white, that his voting performance has been disproportionately white. I mean, that seems a pretty major obstacle if you want to do that. Well, that is certainly the critique, although, you know, his recent landslide victories in Hawaii and Washington State, states that are, you know, Hawaii, I think, is the most diverse state in the nation. Um, and uh, there have been great gains for Bernie Sanders among voters of color. You know, I think many voters of color had never heard of Bernie Sanders. I had never heard of Bernie Sanders before the presidential election campaign. And, you know, the reality is, is that uh, the Clintons are very well known. To black folks in particular. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote my piece for the nation is that although, uh, you know, one side of the Clinton story is well known to black folks, the fact that, you know, Bill Clinton was really the first um, president that ever really embraced black people as human beings. You know, I think it's important mm. when people, you know, talk about lots of folks ask me, particularly white folks, um, ask me, you know, why do so many black folks support Clinton when he, you know, his policies were so disastrous for the African-American community? And I think many people forget that, you know, we had centuries of slavery <laughs> where no politician was responsive to our humanity at all, followed by Jim Crow segregation. And, you know, although Lyndon B. Johnson and Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy um, were allies in some respects, though not all respects, um, with the civil rights movement and African-American communities, there had never been uh, a president or a presidential candidate who actually treated black folks like they were fo real people mm. who could be viewed and treated as human beings, um, you know, who 
weren't a problem to be solved, that didn't treat African Americans as a problem to be solved, but instead would actually sit down and eat with them and sing in their church and acted like they enjoyed, recognized us as human beings. And that was, that's a huge thing. Just as the election of Barack Obama as the first black president is a huge thing for African Americans as a community, it was no small thing for um, Bill Clinton um, to reach out to African American communities in the way that he did. And I think many people remember that, especially older African Americans yeah. remember that. What they don't know, what they often don't know or don't remember, and is actually one of the reasons why I wrote my book, The New Jim Crow, in the first place, is that many people of color don't know or fully understand um, how this system of mass incarceration was constructed, why, and the devastating consequences for our communities. And the Clintons, um, you know, had, a, you know, an important role. They escalated the drug war um, and the Get Tough movement far beyond what the Republicans had done, while at the same time dismantling the federal social safety net and transferring billions of dollars away from child welfare and housing into a prison building boom unlike anything the world had ever seen. And I think it's difficult and painful for many black folks um, to face that reality. We'd rather not believe it. And, uh, you know, we, we would like to imagine that, you know, the, the politicians um, who were willing to sit with us in church and to be our friends um, actually might have done vastly more harm good, than good me, for our community. Let me ask you about this sort of crime record, because I think that's been a focal point of a lot of the critique, particularly along racial justice lines. And there, there's sort of two prongs to this. One is the degree to which Hillary Clinton should bear responsibility for things that her husband uh, signed the law. But the other is that, you know, if you go back and you look at Democrats, black, white, northern, southern of that period, they're all talking like, I mean, here's Marion Barry in 1988. Telling that he wants, telling a television interviewer that he wants uh, murderers, killers, to be hunted down like mad dogs. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the, the 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 rhetoric around crime at that period in the late '80s, early '90s. Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Marion Barry, Mayor of Atlanta, Mayor of New York. It's all pretty shocking to the ears of someone in 2016. Yeah, but I think if you look closely at the records of many, most of the black politicians and activists during that period, including Marion Barry, they weren't just saying get tough. They were also demanding investment in our schools. They were demanding economic investment. They were demanding jobs, job training, the rebuilding of communities that had been devastated by the disappearance of work due to deindustrialization and globalization. These folks weren't saying, just come in and lock everybody up and then give us police and jails and nothing else. No, they were... At that moment in time, in that historical moment in time, there was a real crisis, just like there's a real crisis right now, for example, in Chicago, right? And there's probably many people in Chicago who are living in neighborhoods that are plagued by violent crime that might well say, we need more police, we need to get some of these folks off the street, right? But that's not all they want. Right. That's not all they want. They also want their kids to have a future. They want good schools. They want investment to repair the harm that's been done. They want health care. They want drug treatment on demand for those who are suffering with drug addiction. And what we've seen in, you know, recent months and in the past couple of years is that now that drug use has become or perceived as a white problem, yes. 
there's this wave of compassion and concern. No one's calling for a war. No one's calling for mandatory minimum sentences for, you know, heroin addicts and for people who are committing these kinds of offenses. The kinds of horrible, grotesque caricatures that were done of, you know, people who are struggling with crack addiction. Um, we don't see that in the media around, you know, the many, many white folks who are strung out on heroin and desperately need support. And yet, you know, we have suddenly, you know, space in our hearts um, for concern and for compassion and for treatment and alternative approaches. And you don't hear much thumping and calls for war. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the race and ethnicity um, of those who are suffering at the time. And in the, you know, early 1990s, um, urban black communities were suffering from economic collapse. A literal depression was affecting those communities. Um, you know, the unemployment rate had quadrupled in many urban areas. Um, you know, neighborhoods that were solidly working class, you know, were suddenly turning into ghettos um, practically overnight. And, you know, at that moment, our nation had a choice. We could have responded with bailout packages, economic stimulus plans. We could have invested in those schools so that the young folks trapped in racially segregated communities might have some hope of making the rough transition from an industrial economy where they once relied on factory jobs uh, to a service-based economy where they needed actually a college education even to make it into the middle class. We could have responded with a wave of care, compassion, and concern, but no. Instead, what did we get? We got the war on drugs, the get tough movement, and the evisceration, the end of welfare as we know it. Um, and really the election of Bill Clinton marked the turning point for the Democratic Party, um, where the Democratic Party decided <laughs> that in order to win over those so-called white swing voters, the folks who had defected from the Democratic Party in the wake of the civil rights movement, in order to get those folks, um, you know, they were going to have to begin proving um, to that segment that they could be tougher on right. them than the Republicans had been. And, um, you know, I think that's a part of our political history that is painful, I think, for the black community to face, um, but it's necessary. And, um, you know, it's my hope um, that, you know, as the months and years go by, um, that we will come to see that politics as usual, where, you know, black vote is just taken for granted by the Democratic Party and we're constantly being told you have to vote for us because, you know, God help you if the Republicans are elected, um, that that kind of uh, emotional blackmail mm. um, and scaremongering um, you know, comes to an end and that we, um, you know, force the Democratic Party to deserve our vote um, by organizing movements that truly hold the Democratic Party accountable or perhaps forming another party, um, you know, which I think the Bernie Sanders campaign has demonstrated that there are millions of people out there um, who are hungry. Um, for a different kind of politics and who want their politicians to be, you know, treating, um, you know, the American voters as though they matter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, democracy itself is a quest to ensure that every person, every human being is treated as though their life matters, their voice matters, their vote matters. And what we've seen um, is that we haven't gotten there yet. And it will probably take 
I'm actually certain it will take a political revolution for us to get there. I mean, for the longest time, people have been saying, well, I love Bernie, but of course he can't win. That's right. Now it looks like he can win, but his biggest problem is in yes. the black community. So the brothers far. don't like him. Why? Oh, no, that's not true. Oh, it is. I one's, one's 82 percent of blacks. Because we don't know Bernie. Once they get to know Bernie and recognize, <laughs> it's true. Okay. Brother Bernie Sanders represents... The politician, he's a grand exemplar of integrity in public life at the national level. He represents the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Fannie Lou Hamer, and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and Dorothy Day, and I would add John Coltrane, too. <laughs> because the Bernie Sanders campaign is a love train. But you have to... <laughs> That's what it is. And after Bernie Sanders won decisive victories this in this past weekend's Democratic caucuses in Alaska, Hawaii, and the state of Washington, some of his supporters took to Twitter with the hashtag Bernie Made Me White. It trended for hours. NPR Sam Sanders reports they're aiming to shed some light on what the mix of Bernie Sanders supporters really is. Leslie Lee III says he started the Bernie Made Me White hashtag for a simple reason. There's always been these articles about how Bernie supporters are basically only white people. Lee is black and a Sanders supporter. I talked to him via Skype. Lee says Sanders wins in diverse states like Hawaii and Alaska prove that Sanders is winning minority support. But he says media coverage only talks about Sanders' white voters. Myself and many other people of color who support Bernie Sanders feel like we get ignored. We get erased. It's assumed that the black vote, the Hispanic vote, is all behind Hillary Clinton and none of us really get Bernie Sanders or like Bernie Sanders. So Lee said, hey, if you're going to ignore me as a black person, I might as well embrace my whiteness. You know, I might as well start watching Friends or enjoying pumpkin spice latte or whatever. And the hashtag took off. One black supporter tweeted, ever since I started supporting Bernie, Don't Stop Believing became my karaoke staple. A Latino supporter wrote, after I supported Bernie, I stopped rolling my R's when I speak in Spanish. Another, now the cops don't pull me over as much. And another, finally, I have white privilege. Okay, you get the drift. But in spite of that hashtag, in spite of those vocal Sanders supporters of color, even Bernie Sanders himself has admitted to doing poorly with minority voters. After he won only 14 percent of black voters in South Carolina's primary, Sanders said this. We got decimated, George. We got decimated. He was talking to George Stephanopoulos of ABC News. Sanders also said this to the L.A. Times editorial board. Older African-American women. I think we found two in the country who voted for us. (laughs) So who's right? Are the so-called mainstream media correct when they say Sanders does poorly with minority voters? Or are the media doing a pretty bad job of telling the story of Sanders' existing minority support? Well, I think looking at the exit polls, they're both correct. That is Randy Brown of Edison Research. He also talked to me via Skype. Edison has done exit polls in 18 states so far this primary season. And Brown says Sanders is actually winning the minority vote if you look at a certain subset of it. Among 17 to 29-year-old Hispanics, Bernie Sanders leads Hillary Clinton 66 to 34. Among African-Americans who are 17 to 29, Bernie Sanders is actually leading that group 51 to 48. In other words, Sanders wins young Latino voters 2 to 1 and even has majority support among young black voters. Now, some caveats. Edison hasn't done exit polling in every state that's voted so far, and they did no exit polling in Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington State, the ones that held Democratic caucuses over the weekend. 
And there isn't enough data yet to draw conclusions about the young Asian-American vote. But Brown says there's still a big takeaway. Whether it's among whites or African-Americans that Bernie Sanders does significantly better among the youngest voters in the Democratic primary. And maybe there are two other takeaways. One, no racial group is a monolith. And two, young people can disagree with their parents regardless of their race. Sam Sanders, no relation. NPR News, Washington. Call. Niggas is a beautiful thing. Ah. Niggas is a beautiful thing. Hit me. This is a beautiful thing. Ah. Niggas is a beautiful thing. Then ours be getting in with that. A 20-year-old by the name of Russell Schiller started a hashtag uh, known as Black Women Are Gorgeous. There he is. He's young. And he loves black women. And he created that hashtag in response to girls or women like Kylie Jenner uh, appropriating black culture. And he felt that if white women get celebrated for doing things that black women do, it's about time that black women get celebrated for their culture and what they do. That was his point. Now, uh, of course, this went viral and it did really well. But then people started digging into his tweets and into his past. And then they saw that he's not so squeaky clean when it comes to the black community. In fact, he uses the N-word quite a bit. Uh, I'll give you a few examples of that. Uh, Let's go to graphic 21, please. So, uh, never that, but that, whatever. Do you want to read this? You read this. I don't want to read this. I'm uncomfortable. I'm so uncomfortable. Never that, but that, N-words, pants, be swallowing those shoes whole. Read one tweet. In others, he refers to his acquaintance as them N-words. Yes. Um, and there are more examples. We'll put it up on the screen so you guys can look at it. But I don't think we really need to read it. It's, it always makes me uncomfortable. Anyway, I want to know what you think about this. Because he's so, saying, like, look, I'm, I grew up in a predominantly black community. He goes to an HBCU. Yeah. All right. So in the, in the tone, now, first of all, I'm going to tell you exactly what people think, but not necessarily what they would say. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be some black people that are going to be like, oh, you know, can't this or that or whatever. But... He's not saying N-I-G-G-E-R. Mm-hmm. He's saying it as N-I-G-G-A-S. He's from the north part of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Laverne and Shirley were not skipping down the street in a part of Milwaukee he's from. Mm-hmm. So he grew up in an in a urban environment his whole life. So what, for me, that this sees is a, somebody I would call him white chocolate. I would call a guy who grew up in a, in a black neighborhood, in a black area, and he listened to hip-hop, he listened to rap. We say it ourselves. I, I'm guilty of saying that as well, you know, in different times and contexts. And, you know, I think of the song that Kanye West has called All Day. Mm-hmm. And in the chorus, it's All Day Inward. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when I'm out or in clubs and stuff and it starts playing and I see, like, all the sorority girls and all these people, you know, screaming all day and they say the N-word. It's the same kind of context. Does it make it right? No. Right. You know, what's, what's, what's going on in the country that does not make it, you know, right whatsoever. But at the same time... There's a double standard, and there always has been a double standard. There always will be a double standard because as black people, we say it. So this, I guarantee, he's had a black girlfriend, last two or three girlfriends. Mm -hmm. He's at it. There's not too many white people at HBCUs. So obviously, you know, he's trying to show love to what he really loves. Mm -hmm. And that first tweet that we read, I thought it was a lyric. I was Googling it. Mm-hmm. Trying to find out, was oh. it from a song? I thought he was trying to, like, you know, say a verse. Because a lot of times we may say, you know, a, a, a hip-hop verse, just like when I was doing a mic check. Yeah. And I started going into, like, a song. So, 
you know, I thought that's what he was trying to reference, and I was actually trying to find those lyrics. But that's what I read this as. I read this as a guy who does love black women, but people went through and saw that he was saying this and that, and somebody gave him the pass to say it, and he felt comfortable in tweeting it, and right. tweets don't die. And he anyway. is, you're right, and he his his apology was very sincere, yeah. mm-hmm. and I give him credit for that. I think this was just sheer ignorance, and him, as you said, growing up in a, in a community where he really was one of the few white people, and he right. immersed himself in that culture. However, as a white person, I can't imagine, and I'm glad he learned his lesson, saying that word. I don't have the, my ancestors don't have the history, the horrific history that your ancestors do where they were called that word while they were being lynched and hung, while they were being enslaved, and then even to this day are called that word in a very discriminatory, racist way. So for me, I cringe, but... um, I, I do give him credit for apologizing. I think it was a huge teaching yeah. moment for him. Yeah. I think intent matters a lot, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, look, I, I know a lot of people have been harsh toward him because of the fact that he's used that word. And you got to look into his intent. So does he dislike the black community? Is he fighting for discrimination? No, he he's fighting for equality. He's trying to bring right. awareness to the issue of how beautiful black women are and how little they're respected by today's society and today's culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important issue to bring up. Um, but with that said, and I know people are going to get on me for this, and you know you can criticize me for it Don't as well. I, I think it'll that. be good. Um, I I do dislike that word, and I it's not just when white people use it. I hate that word when it's used. Period. I right. hate it in rap music. I hate it when black people use it. Right. Um, it's not up to me to tell people what they can and can't say. I get that, right. but I I just think that given the terrible history of that word and what it me- means and what it represents. It should just die. It should just go away. I don't want to hear it. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I'm just a thousand percent. And like yeah. I said, the double standard. And, you know, if my father's watching, I'm going to get a phone call after this. And yeah. I'm going to get a talking to because, you know, again, N-I-G-G-A and even Tupac said this years ago in this in this documentary are, you know, the guys in the street trying to work hard and do their thing. N-I-G-G-E-R are the ones that were getting lynched and getting hung and things like that. Yeah. However, my father's generation, I grew up in the civil rights movement disagree with that wholeheartedly, which is why they've been against, you know, rap music and hip hop and you had C. Dolores Tucker and all these other people that were against, you know, using that word and, you know, gangster rap and things like that. So again, does it make it right? No, but I just think that he's not a racist. Yes. I think this is one of those instances where yeah. he, you know, is just an a, a young guy, he's twenty years old and he listens to everything from Travis Scott to Kanye West and yeah, that's right. what is around him. And he took the criticism very well. I mean, you, he could not have written a more, in my opinion, sincere apology. Yeah. Uh, do we have the apology? Yes. Let me go ahead and read that to you because I think it's important to, you know, give his statement. Uh, graphic 23. First and foremost, I would like to apologize to any and every single person I may have offended based on my actions and or tweets. The Black Women Are Gorgeous campaign is a campaign created from a genuine place created to help bring more attention to an already growing movement of recognizing and appreciating strength and independence black women exude. Um, And, you know, he goes on to kind of just talk about how there was no malicious intent in in his prior tweets and that he genuinely respects and loves the community. So, again, intent does matter. But just understand the context and the history of the words that we use. And I love my niggas. I mean, like, niggas in, like, a cool way, not like... I wish you guys. Tonight, you're my nigga.
federal jury awarding two Connecticut men more than $3 million in a race discrimination case against Bridgeport-based company Safety Marketing Incorporated. Fox 61's Jenna DeAngelis sat down with a lawyer in this case. Jenna, what is he saying tonight? Well, Katie, the attorney on the case says the outcome is setting an example for what will and won't be tolerated in the workplace by the state. Each of the two men were awarded more than $1.5 million after filing the discrimination and hostile work charges against their employer. Yosef Bakit is chasing the American dream, a Muslim man who left Sudan after being granted political immunity. He came to the state speaking very little English with no money. In time, he landed on his feet in Bridgeport, Connecticut, getting a job in 2008 with Safety Marking, a company which paints lines on the highway. So here's this great story of an American success story, and then he runs into racism. Which the complaint states happened at job sites and in the shop for several years. You know, the N-word uh, being compared to a black doll. This is really old-style Jim Crow racism, which, which I think when you see it, you know, I think your first reaction is, I can't believe that this still exists. Bakit shared a picture with his co-workers of his brother at the Olympics alongside Usain Bolt. Lawyer Lewis Chimes says this added fuel to an already burning fire. This photograph of uh, Hussein Bolt chasing, uh, I think, Honey Boo Boo with a piece of fried chicken, which was texted to him by his supervisor. The complaint shows African-American Kiata Miles of Trumbull also suffering racial discrimination and more. Neither Bakit nor Miles got training that would enable them to be promoted. In 2012, Lewis requested the company look into these allegations. Safety markings responded to the complaint in a letter saying it did not feel the client was discriminated against, but it would provide sensitivity training to its foreman out of caution. They fought the case the day we submitted the complaint until the trial. Um, down to the very end, denied all the allegations, denied they did everything wrong. A sensitive case, which Chimes feels, speaks volumes. And the jury uh, was all white, and clearly they understood it and, you know, and reacted in a very strong way. Awarding the men together more than $3 million. Sends a clear message that in this state, when we see it, the really outrageous racism in the workplace, we're not going to tolerate it, and we're going to send a message that it's not acceptable. Now, we did reach out to the company, company Safety Marking Incorporated, but we've not heard back. I'm Jenna DeAngelis, Fox 61 News. I want to be a cop. Tonight, the San Francisco Police Department finds itself in the midst of yet another racist texting controversy. This comes on the heels of last year's scandal. ABC 7 News reporter Vic Lee is live at police headquarters with this late-breaking story. Vic. Well, the district attorney gave no names or the stations where these officers came from, but ABC 7 News has learned that at least one of the officers came from Terravel Station. And now, public defender Jeff Hadachi says he'll have to review cases which may have been tainted from these officers. The DA's office has already dropped 13 cases from the original texting scandal. And now, these new allegations. They occurred... Uh, prior to, during, and after last year's scandal, um, and that it involves five officers that are not connected at all to the original 14. The original 14 are officers who were caught exchanging offensive text messages, mostly with former Sergeant Ian Furminger. Furminger is now serving time in federal prison on a public corruption conviction. 
The DA had received 5,000 pages of evidence from the police department stemming from a case involving Officer Jason Lai, who was charged with illegally using police computers to look into criminal offender information. DA investigators then found the offensive text messages from the five officers. Talking about African Americans and using the N-word repeatedly, they're talking about members of the LGBT community, uh, also in a very disparaging fashion. Gascon says racist and homophobic texts are not criminal in nature, but they do pose serious problems in court. The impact that it has on us in Orion is our ability to present evidence, uh, our ability to prosecute cases, and frankly, now the possibility that we may have to dismiss cases. But Police Chief Greg Sear says his office has known about the text messages for a long time. Well, it's possible the DA himself just found out, but his office has known about this since last year. Sir also says there are only four, not five, officers who exchange those messages. Four officers were immediately suspended. Uh, since that time, two of those officers have left the department. Uh, uh, one of the officers is Jason Lai. He is now criminally charged as of Tuesday. Sir has referred the fourth officer to the police commission for disciplinary procedures and possible termination. Vickley, ABC 7 News. Black babies cost less. Friends, family, and the Gainesville community are celebrating the life of 16-year-old Robert Dentman. Dentman was shot and killed at the Majestic Oats apartment complex more than a week ago. TV20's Nico Clements shows us how one of Dentman's youth pastors hopes his friends grow from this experience. Save me how great is our God. Family, friends, teammates fill the Ignite Life Center to remember Robert Dentman. Dentman was shot and killed March 20th by law enforcement. Officials say Dentman had suicidal thoughts based on text he sent prior to calling 911 saying he had a weapon and that he was going to shoot himself. They're stronger than we are as adults at times because when they step out, you don't see it. You couldn't tell anything about anything wrong with Robert by his smile. You couldn't tell it by the way he lit up a room when he walked into a room. Jimmy Johnson was one of Dentman's youth pastors. He says he was there when Dentman decided to accept Christ in his life. In a room full of Dentman's classmates, teammates, and peers, Johnson gave words of encouragement, hoping to change some young person's life for the better. They also remembered the good times they had with Dentman. And I've sat and talked with him, and if there's one thing I know about Robert is that he may not have the funniest jokes, but his smile is crazy. He's like, he'll tell a joke and laugh at his own joke and use it. It's like, that wasn't funny, man. Yeah, it was. Good times, they'll all cherish forever. Nico Clemens, TV20 News. No one knows for sure how many people in the U.S. are evicted each year. There are estimates that it's close to a million. Many are low-income renters living paycheck to paycheck, often in poor quality housing. NPR's Pam Fessler has spent the past three months following families and landlords who end up in rent court. It's there that the struggle over the lack of affordable housing plays out every day. 
LaToya Folks is standing outside rent court in Baltimore, Maryland. A judge has just ruled that Folks has to pay her landlord $4,900 in back rent and fees, despite her complaints that the house has leaky water pipes, chipped paint, rodents, and a huge hole in the living room wall. But Folks didn't notify her landlord of the problem by certified mail, something the judge said she should have done to avoid eviction. It's hard for tenants because tenants don't know the law. And then you have these landlords that just go and buy um, agents. And agents just sit there and study it. So they know a lot of stuff. They know how to get around. They know how to work the judge over. And that's not fair. She's complaining about a system that's pretty common around the country, where most tenants taken to court for failing to pay their rent have no legal representation, while most landlords do. Folks has just consulted a pro bono attorney outside the courtroom and is planning to appeal. But those attorneys can handle only a small portion of the 150,000 cases that come before Baltimore's rent court every year. The burden is really placed on tenants to have to ensure that justice happens, and they just don't have the tools to do it. Zephyr Shah is an attorney with the Public Justice Center in Baltimore. His group recently did a year-long study of just who ends up in the city's rent court. They found that most of the tenants are extremely poor. Making $2,000 or less per month. And only 15% get housing aid, such as vouchers to help cover their rent. Most are also African-American women with children who have a high school diploma or less. And usually, they lose their cases. One in 17 of the city's renters is evicted each year. Mothers with children are really the face of America's eviction epidemic. Matthew Desmond is a Harvard sociologist who spent more than a year with tenants and landlords in two of Milwaukee's poorest neighborhoods. In his new book, Evicted, he details the precarious living conditions of low-income tenants who are routinely overwhelmed by their monthly rent. What we're seeing in Milwaukee is something we're seeing in Cleveland and Indianapolis and St. Louis and cities all around the country. He notes that most poor renting families pay more than 50 percent of their income on housing. One in 11 expects to be evicted within the next two months. And in Milwaukee, most of those evicted have children with an average age of seven. I'll never forget this one eviction I saw when I was with the sheriffs. And we went into a home and we just saw uh, children, just children. And what had happened was uh, the mom had died couple months earlier, and the kids had just gone on living in the house. And um, it was raining. It was like a cold winter rain. And uh, we evicted the homes and piled the children's stuff outside. Desmond doesn't know what happened to those children, but many people who are evicted end up homeless, crashing with family members, or moving into cheaper, less adequate housing, which only worsens the poverty that got them evicted in the first place. Desmond thinks one solution is free legal aid for low-income tenants. Studies show that those with lawyers are far more likely to avoid eviction. He says a bigger help would be... To make housing vouchers universal. And the idea is very simple. Uh, everyone below a certain income level would receive a voucher and would only pay about 30 percent of their income to housing. The voucher would cover the rest. Which is how housing vouchers work now, but there aren't enough of them to go around. Cities have waiting lists that are years, even decades long. Landlords also complain about too much bureaucracy, which makes some of them reluctant to accept vouchers. They say the government needs to do more to encourage developers to build affordable housing. Then we can be successful, at least make progress. There's a long road to hoe here. 
Mike Clark is on the board of the National Apartment Association and owns Alpha Barnes Real Estate Services, which manages 14,000 affordable units in Texas. Clark says landlords don't want to evict tenants if they don't have to. It costs a lot of money to move a tenant out and get a new one in. He says what's needed are more incentives to increase the stock of low-income housing. Tax credits, property tax breaks, reduced utility rates, reduced hookups, uh, zoning alternatives, all kinds of things like that. That's what produces housing. And there are efforts across the country to do just that, but not enough to keep up with demand. So in cities like Milwaukee and Baltimore and Washington, D.C., tens of thousands of tenants and their landlords continue to meet in court. Tenants like Pamela Glover of Washington, D.C., who stopped paying her rent out of frustration that she has to live with leaks, mildew, and nightly gunfire outside her apartment. She'd like to move, but says it's hard to find a better place that she can afford. The apartment may be nice, but it's just the area. It's like a give and take. You're going to get a good apartment, but the area is going to be unsafe. You're going to get a safe one, but the apartment going to be high. A constant trade-off for many low-income renters in a high-rent world. World, 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 Let's stay in South Africa for another story. In the apartheid era, millions of black and mixed-race South Africans were forced out of their homes. They were moved to barren land away from where the white minority lived. Now some families living in Cape Town are worried history is repeating itself, but this time under a democratically elected government. Sarah Birnbaum has our story. Rose Salaji was one of the first people of color to move into her whites-only neighborhood in Cape Town. I remember so clearly. The Minister of Housing at the time said that irrespective of color or creed, you shall not be refused a state house. That was a Wednesday. I couldn't wait for Thursday morning to come. Thursday morning, Salaji woke up early and went down to the housing office to fill out an application. The staff looked at her like she was nuts. And when the ladies have asked me now, uh, you know you are a colored, why are you applying for a house here? So I said, who are you to tell me that I cannot rent from a state house when last night the announcement was made that anybody of color can apply? And that is exactly what I'm doing. This was 1994, the year apartheid fell. We voted for the first time, April, September, the 1st of September, I moved in here. Here is in a place called Maruna Estates. Many of the houses, including Salaji's, are owned by the government and rented out to poor families at a very low rent. The neighborhood is orders of magnitude nicer than the township Salaji was herded into as a child. There are playgrounds and trees, train stations, schools, and supermarkets are close by. But now, Salaji and about 100 other families in Naruna Estates are at risk of being evicted. The government says it has to raise the rent. The families won't be homeless, though, says Provincial Housing Minister Bonga Kosimata-Kazela. Instead of chucking them out the streets, we are saying, look, given your circumstances that you can no longer afford to pay, we are going to give you an alternative accommodation. That alternative accommodation is on the outskirts of the city, in the areas that black people had to live in before 1994. Mata says the government has no choice. Naruna is too expensive to keep up, and people haven't been paying the rent. 
if you can't pay, if you don't accept alternative accommodation, obviously the last resort is for you to vacate the property. I mean, that's how it is all over. But what's different here is the government appears to be reverting to an apartheid-era legacy. When Cape Town was built, it was conceived as a whites-only city center surrounded by settlements for black laborers. To this day, most of the poor live in peripheral townships, while the wealthier white minority continues to live in the city center. Naruna Estates was one of the exceptions. Salaji admits she's behind on her rent. Still, for her, this feels like apartheid all over again. As a person of color, you were removed from places to the outskirts. And in this day and age, they're doing it again. They're just doing it again on a different way. Madakazella bristles at the comparison. If you look at the people who are spreading these lies, are people who have failed to pay for years and for months. Now, in order for them not to be evicted, they are now coming up with this narrative and portray us as government as monster. For now, Salaji is refusing to leave. I, I, I just cannot. She says the house itself is packed with memories. It symbolizes for her the end of apartheid and the beginning of freedom. I just cannot just pack up and go. For The World, Sarah Birnbaum, Cape Town, South Africa. This is Bill Cosby coming at you with music and fun. And if you're not careful, you may learn something before it's done. now, the Smithsonian has announced plans to acknowledge the sexual assault allegations facing comedian Bill Cosby at its new African-American History Museum, which opens later this year on the National Mall. Joining us live, commentator Clinton Yates. Clinton, as we know, this was not the original plan, the intent of the African-American History Museum. There originally was to be no mention of these allegations, so... Now the change. Is this a good move by the museum, or did they cave to pressure on this? I think there's some of both, but I don't think there's anything wrong with caving to so-called pressure in this situation. I mean, let's be real. Part of Bill Cosby's legacy at this point are those allegations. I think what's most interesting is what they are actually going to highlight from his career. They're going to look at his work at I Spy. They're going to look at his work as a comedian with records. But ostensibly, there's no mention of the biggest thing that he did. Hello, The Cosby Show. And omitting that alone, I think, is an indication that you are trying to see something about him that is more than just what we've seen of him on screen. However, it's going to be a very delicate matter because does Bill Cosby deserve to be mentioned in this museum? Absolutely. Does one part of him deserve to be mentioned? No. There's a lot more than just what meets the eye when it comes to the small screen. Now, this museum still hasn't said how it will address the allegations. It's possible that what they decide on could ignite things a little further down the road, too. That's true, but you got to assume that it's a museum and therefore it's going to be a teaching moment. Let's be honest with ourselves here. There's a lot of things that could go into that museum that probably won't make it. Bill Cosby is a point where we need to teach each other. It's not just about him. They say that these allegations have tarnished his legacy. There's an argument that he himself has tarnished his legacy through his actions and the way that he's handled this. If we get to educate each other about the concept of rape culture, about the concept of the institutionalized paternalism that allows men in 
in certain positions to do the things that they do to women. If we can educate each other on what matters and what we can take away from this, ultimately, forget about Bill Cosby's legacy. It'll be a good thing for all involved to attend that museum to learn about what he's been accused of. The effect on his legacy certainly uh, can make an, an argument about that and, and, a, and a clear one. I wonder, though, are you jumping the gun? Because at this point, it's still allegations. Nothing has been proven yet in court. No verdict has been given. Is this a little too much too soon? You know, I come down on the side of believing women and believing victims. And so for me personally, it's difficult for me to say that you have to be proven in a court of law in order for something to matter. So personally, that is not much of a concern for me. But overall, if you're looking at it from a strict news standpoint, the allegations are still there. You know, you have to respect that and you have to understand it from what it means to everybody else. You simply don't have the Bill Cosby story in full if you don't have the allegations. And I think that's something that the museum has finally realized. And the museum's also uh, putting in perspective its position, saying it's not honoring or celebrating Bill Cosby, just acknowledging his role in American entertainment. Yeah, and the Smithsonian's in a different, d- difficult spot because they had that art exhibit in which they had a very awkward two-step i think that they're trying to find a way to rationalize this in their own minds and they're still doing work i celebrate them for the simple fact that they've acknowledged that something has to change it's a difficult situation going forward and by the time it opens in september i think we're going to have a vastly different view on it now than we do or then than we do now that may be true that is commentator clinton yates part of commentary and analysis from all sides on wtop context of white supremacy Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, April 2nd, 2016. So I have been told compensatory call in. Feel free. Chime in. If you have comments you would like to share, the number to dial 641-715-3640. The code is 564 nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate the number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate Fundraising for 2016. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com Racism-notes.blogspot.com PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not in the PayPal, drop us an email. We'll get you a physical mailing address. Uh, Thanks to all the folks who have invested, supported us down through the years. Hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, quick thoughts before uh, we nab some of the folks who dialed in. If you have comments you'd like to share, certainly we'll get to workplace racism uh, a little bit later uh, in the program. Uh, number one, the segment that we started off the audio clips with uh, on the play in North Carolina, Abraham uh, Bosom, uh, that is uh, going to be. The production will happen this Monday, April 4th, uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. If we have, I know we have listeners that are in the North Carolina area, uh, Mr. Scotty Reed, uh, down in uh, his state. Uh, but if you're there, that sounds like something that might be constructive. Uh, if you, particularly if you're looking for events where you could uh, potentially take younger 
uh, black people where you can go learn some North Carolina state history. Uh, it sounds like they're going to have a forum where questions could be asked. So you could ask your uh, questions, have an opportunity. Maybe if you have uh, younger black people and you want to uh, have them ask a question or two, but that is going down this Monday. Uh, I wanted to make sure if people uh, knew sometimes if I catch events or play things where it, the event is happening in the future and people that in the area have the time, might have the time or interest in going to participate, make sure that I uh, get that out. Uh, the next thing, the I didn't have this in the audio clips, but this certainly got a lot of attention with the uh, bill that was passed, House Bill 2, in also North Carolina, uh, where they put restrictions on the uh, laws that can be made around use of public restroom facilities. Uh, and basically the law says that you uh, you cannot just say that I'm, you know, transgender or however I choose to identify. So, you know, even though uh, I might have a beard down to my knees and all of this, I'm going to go to the female bathroom and, and all the everything else that has come about over the last few years. Uh, they passed uh, legislation saying that you cannot do that, that you have to use the restroom that corresponds to your biological uh, sexual identity and what is on your birth certificate and that the cities in North Carolina cannot come up with any local uh, legislation on their own. That's my understanding of the legislation. So, and there was a lot and continues to be a lot of controversy around all of this and uh, different businesses getting involved and saying that they're going to boycott North Carolina. I think even the NBA, they're supposed to have the all-star game uh, there next year, 2017. And they're saying, Oh, wait a minute. We, we can't have this. You can't be having any anti uh, gay or anti-LGBT legislation. I think Georgia, they also had, uh, it was slightly different. It was uh, religious freedom legislation, if my understanding is, is correct. And this would have given, uh, I guess, business owners uh, the preference to uh, deny someone uh, access to their facility based on uh, their religious freedom or whatever their whatever their religious beliefs uh, happen to be. And people were saying that, hey, you can say because of my religious faith, uh, I do not accept uh, gay people or LGBT or whatever it is. So, you know, you cannot use our uh, establishment that was vetoed. Uh, by the governor this week. But what I thought was well, the many things that are significant, but the one thing that I will highlight here, all of this legislation passed without notoriously homophobic black people. This is one I would step like real aggressive. The next time that I hear anybody, white person, non-white person, I don't care who, if it was my mother and they had the audacity, the gall to open their mouth for five seconds and say anything about black people don't accept gays. And oh my God, what's wrong with that? There was not a single black person in North Carolina who sponsored that bill, House Bill 2. Not one. There was not one black member of the North Carolina General Assembly who sponsored House Bill 2. White people got that done all on their own. I did not see a single event where they had Black Lives Matter protesters or Al Sharpton or the NAACP or the Urban League or Scotty Reed or any other black people uh, to come out and say, we got to get House Bill 2 passed. Black people are notoriously homophobic. We don't want all this chaos. And I did not see any of that. White people did that. And I didn't see that happen in Georgia. Uh, I think they've had the same thing happen in Mississippi and other areas. I mean, real aggressive because I, in my view, that's just another very aggressive and consistent aspect of racism, white supremacy with what's been happening 
happened in the past few years with all of this uh, LGBT stuff. If you just put in notoriously homophobic black people, if you just Google search uh, those words, it is amazing the number of times that that will come up and people who have said uh, that statement or statements very close to that. It happened with Jason Collins when he came out in the NBA uh, not that long ago. It happened with uh, Michael Sam in uh, the NFL uh, not that long ago. Uh, the actor, the black male actor uh, who was in the film Dear White People, he said it back. I believe that was 2014 when that uh, film came out. I mean, this is just like every other month. Somebody feels the need to indict black people in this manner. And with all of this going down this week, black people were not even on the periphery of these bills getting passed. I mean, that's important legislation, not just you have views or I don't like this person, but the ability to get laws passed based on your preferences. That is huge. And that had nothing to do with black people. Uh, the last thing uh, that I will get in and this, I just saw just checking the news, Dr. Francis Cress Wells. And she said it all the time, the importance, check the news, be informed about what's uh, going on locally, nationally, globally in the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, you heard in the audio segment, uh, Michelle uh, Alexander, uh, you heard in the audio segment, Michelle Alexander, uh, non-white female, she does have a white parent, author of the new Jim Crow, where she was talking about uh, the legacy of the drug war and how that connects to white supremacy, the damage that's been done to black people, the difference in and how all of that looks now that they're saying that a lot of white people are abusing heroin and these opiates. Uh, and I've been saying, I can't even just say that I've been saying this for a couple of weeks, uh, but even though we did have the audio segment last week, they had the uh, white author of the piece that was in Harper's magazine where he was talking about we need to go ahead and just legalize. Uh, these drugs, the drug war has been racist and it's a failure. We should just legalize uh, all of these narcotics uh, and regulate it. Uh, they had a post and you can, you can see it right now. If you go to the Washington post, if you go to their uh, page, front page, the article is LSD could make you smarter and happier. Should we all try it? Front page of the Washington post. They're talking about LSD now. I think, See, I think I said last week, and I have been saying for years, you can go back in the archive again when they uh, first voted to legalize here in Washington State and Colorado in 2012. I said it was not just going to be cannabis, that it was going to end up being the whole slate, legalize everything. And this is one I think if you pull back and you take the 50 year, 100 year perspective, this is one I would encourage with Mr. Fuller when he says uh, that our counter racist stance with regards to quote unquote gay rights is that we should let white people run an experiment on it for 200 years, 500 years and see if this is going to be a, a colossal benefit. And then we'll make our assessment, our decision on how to go. This is one that we should say the same thing. Let white people, if you want to legalize everything and try LSD and, you know, have all this stuff be uh, legal, regulated, available. You can just go down to your corner uh, outlet and pick all this stuff up at the same time. Let them try it out and see if this is going to have a constructive result for the next 500 years. And then we'll make an assessment. In the meantime, I do not think that this is going to be in our best interest. And I suspect you'll just have more content like this is a part of the normalizing process. And we should have John Patash uh, on the program. John Patash is a white male author, substance abuse counselor, suspected racist. He wrote the book, the FBI's war against Tupac Shakur and black leaders, uh, but he is a substance counselor by trade. Uh, that is his uh, profession. He uh, wrote a second book that also deals with racism, but it talks about how drugs are being used as a weapon 
against, I would say, predominantly non-white people, but I think he just says the population in general. But that's the whole theme of his book in giving this idea that, hey, there's nothing wrong and uh, there's no consequences to this sort of behavior. It just needs to be regulated and you can experiment, you can try all this different stuff and how this has evolved over the last 60, 70 years or so. But he should be on the program a week from tomorrow. I will stop there. Uh, If folks would like to share, again, the number 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you could take five minutes to share, five minutes, that way it allows for everybody to make sure that they get an opportunity to speak. If we have extra time, then folks, if you have other comments that you want to share, if you have questions or uh, things that you just could get in your five minutes, we'll make time for that as well. But if you could take five minutes, that would be great. You could watch the background noise. Also, that would be great if you could use your mute button. If you know you're in kind of a noisy environment, uh, just to make sure that we don't have a lot of disruptions uh, to the quality of the broadcast. Uh, And again, for the compensatory call in, no metaphors. It's that this is not something that is uh, where I'm saying this has to be the case forever. This is exclusive to the compensatory call in on Saturdays. Uh, no metaphors. And again, if we have uh, people who do not understand the first time listeners. I just say that because frequently when people are discussing racism, metaphors are employed uh, that are not accurate, meaning they are describing or comparing uh, two things that are not alike. They are comparing two things that are not equivalent uh, and they just create confusion. Uh, I have taken the position that many times white people do this deliberately to spread uh, misunderstanding about what racism is, how it works. I think a lot of times we as victims, uh, we pick metaphors just because it's easy when you're trying to explain a concept uh, that can be challenging to articulate, that sometimes it can be easier to bring in metaphors. And I think we should all uh, be improving our ability to be specific and exact about what we mean and not substitute metaphors for trying to describe or articulate our stance on racism or counter racism no metaphors and again I'm challenging myself to be better about that because it happens so frequently I think sometimes people do it and they're not even thinking myself included Uh, so no metaphors no metaphors just be as specific as you can uh, with what you are trying to say grand Everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, I will. Well, that is not true. The first half or so of the people who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, Feel free to comment. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir, Mr. Demery. Oh, greetings, Gus. Uh, Greetings to other callers. Uh, I'd like to comment on the first clip concerning Paul Green. Uh, I believe he was a white playwright that wrote Abraham's Bosom, a play created uh, about an African-American man who had a white father and that um, he tried to create a school and they ran him out and it stemmed murder. So I guess this sounds interesting, but it, uh, shows that white people are not ignorant about racism and the effects that racism have upon non-white black people. The person uh, talking about the play 
pointed out about how Paul Green could look at these people as human, you know, and I was thinking uh, the character Abraham McCraney, uh, you know, a, a black character that is driven to murder. I mean, how racist can your plot get? But that uh, the second, well, the next one I'd like to comment on is the evictions. Uh, eviction, they were speaking about Milwaukee and one out of 11 poor people was evicted and that the court is usually favorable towards the landlords and the tenants in court usually lose. But, you know, if you look at it another way around where whites are given advantages to social programs and the people talking about, uh, the one person that was talking about saying he witnessed an eviction where the parents had died and that there were children living in the house he evicted them anyway or whatever. He didn't know what happened to them later on or it sounded like that he cared. And then the next clip proves that this is a global situation in South Africa. They were in, evicting uh, tenants, you know, similarly and with no concern for the tenants after the eviction. Like we know, uh, Mr. Neely Fuller says, a white supremacist says, keep them moving. The blacks always in a state of displacement. It's a form of racial terrorism and it's practiced uh, as a form of racism, white supremacy. I mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, guys. And I did uh, hear uh, Clifton Yates, but I didn't catch what was going on with him. Uh, he was commenting about uh, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., that they uh, later this year, they're going to be opening up the Museum on uh, African-American History. And Bill Cosby is going to be included. And they've decided that they are going to, I guess, somehow include the sexual allegations against him, that that'll be a part of whatever exhibit or however he's uh, displayed uh, in the museum and he was commenting on uh, uh, I'm paraphrasing I'm kind of boiling it down but basically or I'm reducing it just so I can be concise he's saying that uh, he agreed with their stance that he thought it was important that they acknowledge um, the sexual allegations against Mr. Cosby yeah that I mean I just read somewhere all charges was dropped dismissed and his name is cleared why should they do the man like that and for him to say that it's just it's not uh admirable hmm. that i hadn't seen where the uh charges had, uh were dropped i thought the case was they were still dealing with it, but i'll double check uh on that as we uh proceed uh right on uh if other folks had commentary uh your line should be open feel free Hey, can I be heard? Yes, sir. 
Uh, good evening, Gus. This is uh, your caller from the Bronx. Um, All right on. Good, good to hear from you, sir. Yeah, you as well. Um, yeah, I, I missed a lot of the uh, a lot of the stories. Um, I heard part of the one that the the, the previous caller was talking about um, sounded interesting, but um, the Smithsonian uh, talking about Bill Cosby. I was just thinking about the uh, that book. Like I was just thinking about like where is this where like the Smithsonian they probably have their origins as like as like uh grave robbers, you know, and like cannibals, like I was thinking because I'm reading that book right now, Cannibals, Mummies and Vampires. So I'm just, you know, imagining that that's probably, you know, their uh heritage or whatever as far as their whole organization goes. And, you know, knows what kind of stuff they you know it's whatever i don't even need to go into that but uh and um interesting you just uh sparked i wasn't really going to say much anything but you're talking about the whole encouraging of drug use to black people just that theme and uh brother polite who you've had on you know multiple times brother polite he's he's great um i i you know i I buy products from him and stuff. Um, but uh, he just had a debate with this Jewish guy. This Jewish guy, basically, what it was, is he's basically Tim Wise with a yarmulke, okay? And this, so this this guy, he's trying to say that black people, he has a plan for black people and stuff, and he wants everyone to hold hands and, you know, be all together and stuff. That, those are his metaphors, not mine, you know? But, um... You know, just that he he wants he wants there be, he has this vision of um, people all you know being in this um, you know their their terms you know multicultural you know whatever you know solving all our problems together and stuff like that. So brother polite challenged him in this debate where he's debating that you know can like you know the the, the belief system structures that white Jews follow. Is there any place for black people in those structures? Is there any place for black people in those structures where we would benefit? You know, so Brother Polite comes with all this information about, you know, the Jewish culture and all that, and about, um, and about just how you know systematically they're, you know, they, you know, practice racism against us and stuff. And this guy, basically, his whole his whole platform, he comes to tell people that DMT is going to bring us closer to God. DMT is a drug that's found in, like, plants, you know, in our, our indigenous cultures at a place for this, in their, in their, you know, in their rights and systems, you know, these, you know, uh, these, these, um, uh, you know, substances found in plants that would, they would, they would use them in their rituals and whatnot, you know, in their place in society. But he's, he's taking this out of context, just, he was just saying that, that if we use these drugs, that we would know what what the hype about religion was about, right? And um, so that was his message to the people. This white guy comes to, to Harlem and he's telling black people that they should do drugs to get closer to God, basically. And it was amazing. Yeah, like Brother Floyd just made him look like he, he didn't make him look anything. He just kind of contrasted him by providing actual information about, you know, all types of things. And yeah, so, uh, you know, it was just very interesting. Um, that's all I had to comment right now. Uh, so, yeah.
Right on, right on. Great to hear, great to hear. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you all have uh, things you wanted to share? I'm here. Your line is breaking up, Thomas, in New York. This better? Uh, it sounds, yes, it sounds better. Okay, good evening. I'm Thomas Smith in New York. Yes, uh, the gentleman was right. Um, I did see that debate, and um, yeah, he did um, a very good job of comparing, um, put, putting together a contrast. And um, you know, I thought he did a, I thought he won, and he beat the white guy pretty good. Um, not that it matters in the border scope of things, but you know, it was a, it was good to see. Um, I had a few observations off the skits. Um, man, Michelle Alexander. Yeah, she's so confused, you know. So I, felt, I felt like I was listening to Kanye West. You know, it's the privilege, it's the classism. The Democrats are not racist, it's the Republicans. Like, yeah, she's a walking billboard for why Area 8 activity should be illegal. Because um, she, she was, was trying to find good white people in there to, to add in and just, uh, you know, and we can't vote our way out of making people how they feel. They feel racist. That's how they feel. I mean, and they're willing to act on it. And it, you can't vote people's... It's just... She, she sounded like a walking... Um, one of those people that you see on all the news channels. Like, all her talking points came straight from the news. Um, you know, white people are so proficient. Uh, we have whole chapters of books, school books, about our slave masters and these slave rapists and um you know never no mention of their brutality or rape in there but bill cosby <laughs> this will follow him forever um and even if he wins it's still gonna follow him it's like michael jackson he beat the case of the child rape but it's no documentary you can watch where they don't talk about it so you know it still makes him look guilty it's just they just destroyed him and I hope everyone's looking, you know, other stars are seeing this. Um, great transition. I think Ms. Demery mentioned it from the housing crisis we have here to the one in South Africa, worldwide gentrification. Um, that's what I call it. Um, it's everywhere. And um, had an observation this week. Um, you know, my kids were in my room. And I came in the house, and I heard my kids and my wife yelling. So I went into the room, and what I saw, um, I want to say it nauseated, but I'll say mortified me. Um, they were watching TV, and I realized they were trying to solve a puzzle from the Wheel of Fortune. So, you know, instantly, you know, I sit down in memories of, you know, me and my cousins, you know, and my deceased grandmother, picking us up after school and we would watch that with her every day. So I joined in and, um, you know, my grandmother was dead now, but, um, this was my father's mother and, um, she was from South Carolina and she never tried to solve the puzzles, even though she watched the show every day. And, um, all she would do is comment on Vanna White and her outfits and how pretty she was, you know, you know, you know, God bless the dead, you know, you know, my late, my grandmother you know, had 10 subscriptions to magazines. We get three papers delivered every day. But one day I realized as a teenager that she couldn't even read, you know. So I started teaching her how to read, you know, because 
you know, but she would watch the Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy every day. And couldn't solve no questions, couldn't answer one question, you know, just would watch it. I don't know why. But either way, um, what mortified me was, after all these years, this same white chick is walking around tapping the boxes, revealing the letters. And I'm like, got me thinking, and I just realized the level of white supremacy programming that I went through as a child, not even knowing, and my grandmother as well, you know, because this white woman was promoted to us throughout the 80s and 90s as the pinnacle of beauty and elegance. Um, and now she's 60. She's like a walking piece of plastic uh, with her elegant gowns on, still tapping the boxes. Ran a white, but her last name's not white. It's Vosish. And I wonder why they, she chose white or why they chose white for her, you know? Because we all know what white means, you know. Vanna, like vanity, could mean conceit or pride. You know, is it white pride? I don't know. You know, I was trying to think it. But um, just the subtle racist programming they're very good with, you know, because all these years I watched this show and, you know, you're told this woman is beautiful and, you know, you just start comparing other people to her to gauge your level of beauty, you know, until you start, you know, using your own brain, um, not getting through the brainwash. But I just thought that, after 30 years, now a whole other generation of kids are going through that same program, and that just, you know, mortified me, you know? And I'll mute my mind. Thank you. Uh, Michelle uh, Alexander does have a white parent, uh, which I think uh, is very important. People should keep that in mind. Uh, other folks who dialed in who have a uh, hand up, not that uh, that should, you know, <laughs> discourage you from reading new Jim Crow or checking out other uh, material that she produces. But I, I think that would be a helpful bit of information to keep in mind as you process her material. Hello. Uh, we'll get puff first. Yes. Okay. Greetings, everybody. This is uh puff. Um, girl, um, you just mentioned my question. My question was going to be, uh, but before I get to my question, I just want to add to uh, uh, the caller in New York's point about Vanna White. Uh, Vanna White, uh, she's both toxed out, baby. Have you ever tried to see her smile? Oh my goodness. Anyway, uh, to my question, why is why is uh, having a white parent important? I mean, the po- the the point is, I mean, they're, they're not, the out, the offspring are not white, is what I'm saying. Even if it, even if it's somebody light-skinned, like, like Cameron Boyce, the actor, victim of racism, Cameron Boyce. Even if they're that light-skinned, I mean, they're still black, is what I'm saying. So why is having a white parent significant or important? Or why is that different? Uh, I think it's significant, and I know through the years that we have been doing this program, that is something that I point out when we have guests on the program, uh, or just period, people who talk about racism, white supremacy, if they have a white parent, I submit that it's very important because that white parent ends up having a colossal impact on the way that they talk about, think about, articulate 
racism, white supremacy. And since I mentioned it with uh, Michelle Alexander, I would say, in my view, her having a white parent, I think some of that comes through consistently in the way that she talks about racism, white supremacy. It's been my experience as well that white people, they also, I might even be able to pull President Obama into this discussion as well. It's been my experience that white people, they tend to acknowledge and point out when a non-white person has a white parent and place some significance on that if that individual has less melanin and or if they think that that person will be easier to use in the maintenance of racism, white supremacy. Yes, they are still a victim, but it's been my experience throughout the history of racism, white supremacy, victims of racism, non-white people who have a white parent, that that is something that ends up being significant according to racists. And I think it's important for non-white people to pay attention to it as well, even if it's nothing more than understanding why this person might have a certain level of confusion or understanding better why they talk about racism, white supremacy in the way that they do, especially if they're cutting, uh, not being willing to indict or talk about whites in an accurate manner. I could be an error, but that's my reasoning for why I think it's very important. Yeah, but, I mean, it's, that's not in all cases. I mean, even Michelle Alexander, I mean, she wrote a book about, um, I couldn't think of the name of that book, but it's about the... New Jim Crow. Illegal, yeah, the, the illegal, not not illegal, but the, the imbalanced justice system, as far as, you know, bringing attention to that. But I don't, I don't, I don't think, I disagree with that, like, in all cases, that the person is not... Even, even President Obama, I mean, you can't say that, you know, having a white parent, like, I don't, I don't see how that fits, really. I didn't say all cases. Say that in all cases. I didn't say all cases. Uh, and President Obama, uh, Senator Harry Reid did make infamously the comment that President Obama would not be in the White House if he was darker. I think him having a white parent greatly contributed to him not being darker. But I did not say all cases, just for clarification. But what does that have to do with President Barack Obama? I mean, he didn't choose, I mean, his white parent. I mean, what is that? I, I just don't see the, I don't tie the two together. Like, what does that have to do with, I don't know. Okay. Oh, good. I know that that is uh, one that can bog it down. We have talked about that before. If folks want to check out the uh, book study session, we did Dreams for My Father because he talks a lot about his white mother uh, in that book. And, you know, I, I feel like I've heard or it's not. I feel I have heard a lot of different conversations that are quite interesting around President Obama uh, having a white mother uh, and whatever impact that has had on where he's gotten and, and how that plays out in the system. But I could be in error. Uh, folks can process that. Uh, as we move along, if we have a little time, we can spend, uh, we can go back to that. If folks would like to share other comments on that as we proceed, that's fine too. Uh, if Puff, if you, if you didn't have anything else, uh, no, that's it. That's it. Go ahead. Right on. Did I hear another female caller, uh, in there? I know I heard Roz and a couple others. Was there another female caller who wanted to share? I guess I did not. Uh, was it uh, Ross? Did you, were you going to comment, sir? Uh, yes. Um, first, I just wanted to speak to this, what you just talked about with Puff. Um, and a good evening to you, Gus, and to Puff, um, Thomas in New York, uh, Mr. Demery, and all the other callers and listeners. Um, I, I think, well, for me, I would say the reason that a person having a white parent is important is because you get to see, in a lot of cases, 
the detriment to the psyche of the non-white child that the white parent brings into the equation. Um, uh, Dutch talked about uh, President Obama's uh, biography. That's one book. I remember uh, you had a guest on the show, Gus, that had a white, uh, I believe, white mother who told him all his life that he was darker than the rest of his family because he had a disease. And if I'm not mistaken, he learned at 21 years old in college when one of his um, classmates told him, dude, you're just a black guy. Like, and, and for the first time, he actually heard that you're not, you, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just a, a regular black kid with a white parent. Um, I remember that particular story. I forget the guy's name. I think his first name was David. Dave, um, Myers. Dave Myers, yes. And it was a fascinating uh, story. Blew my mind. Um, there's a, there's a couple, quite a few uh, episodes on the cows where there was, where there were uh, people with white parents and just the, the sheer psychological damage that they do by not being honest with the child about racism. And I'll just say it this way. Um, back Back in the days before this so-called uh, modern terroristic racist era, um, when you had a white parent, it was you were already put into the black side of things. So, in other words, even when you were on the on the plantation, if you um, were born to a, a mixed race, a miscegenated rape relationship, essentially you were automatically classified as black. The difference is today white people have created a new category, which is mixed race. And this adds confusion because these black children now want to say that they're, you know, 10 parts Irish and one part, you know, um, Cherokee and, you know, five parts African. And it just creates a level of confusion that does not gel with the reality of what racism, white supremacy is when they go out in the world and they're treated as a nigger. So it adds this confusion and creates the exact buffer class that Dr. Chancellor Williams talks about in Destruction of Black Civilization. I think he outlined it probably better than any other scholar. Um, that's what I wanted to say about that. Um, again, speaking on uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, what she says, and she is very confused, but the clip where she speaks about um, Bill Clinton, she really is speaking about how Bill Clinton's entire political platform was white validation. You know, and I remember Dave Chappelle did a skit where he like um, uh, mimicked the voice of Bill Clinton, and he said, "Come here, little nigger baby. I just want to, you know, let me give you a kiss, little nigger baby." And it was like, and and he basically was playing up on how Bill Clinton used white validation, validating black people by, like she said, going out to dinner with some of them and kissing their little nigger babies and smiling with them on camera and shedding tears, acting like, you know, he really cared about Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, all of these things brought us into this, oh, Massa is paying us attention and he's saying things, you know, that, that, that are just mesmerizing the crowd. He's like the Tim Wise president. And um, she really speaking about that, but I don't think she has the verbiage to actually speak about, you know, speak about it accurately. Um, she also is speaking about when she says she said it was hard for blacks to face that a politician who was willing to sit and eat with them could um, could have been so detrimental. And she's really speaking about his rhetorical ethic because he jailed multiple generations of black people. Um, did you? I want to ask you guys if you saw the clip that I sent you on Nick Cannon. Yes, sir. Yeah, you heard him when he said that his, he was talking about Bill Clinton. He said his cousin, I think he said his cousin is still locked up due to Bill Clinton's uh, policies. And I mean, like, it's just really just speaking about the fact that um, the white validation is so important to us that we we had the nerve to call him the first black president because he gets oral sex in an office under a desk from a, from a white female and he admits to smoking weed. Like, that was the most 
ignorant thing I ever heard. I, I thought that from the very beginning, and I just said that this is patently incorrect for black people to even go that route. And to me, it just solidifies for him that he had us hanging, hanging. You know, he had us really, you know, um, um stuck on him, and it, the Jesus syndrome really was infused into us just by having him as president. Um, also, the oh, the clip about the white guy in Milwaukee uh, saying saying the, um, that the word nigga and talking about using the term N-I-double-G-A um, and how that's supposed to be different. And I remember the guy referenced Tupac because at one point he said something about N-I-G-G-A means never ignorant, getting goals accomplished. And he tried to basically qualify the use of that term. And I remember writing an essay a few years back where um, I found an image. It was a motorcycle repair kit, and it was called the Nigger Motorcycle Repair Kit. And it was spelled N-I-double-G-A. And this was from the early 1900s or the late 1800s. It's on the, um, the uh, Ferris Museum, uh, the Ferris University Museum of Jim Crow Racist Memorabilia. That's where I actually first saw the image and um, I utilized it in my essay just to prove a point that they have been calling this nigga in every sort of spelling you could think of. And that whole idea of just saying, oh, this difference in spelling will qualify the use of this statement, uh, this word as a term of uh, endearment was just insanity amongst black people. And I've always said, you don't hear Vietnamese saying, what's up, my gook? You don't hear Jews saying, what's up, my kike? We're the only people who have taken terms that have been used to psychologically terrorize us and turn around and call ourselves this. So it really shows the mental illness, the, the severe mental illness that we're suffering under from not getting the, the black mental health that we need to really heal and move, move forward as whole people. Um, also, uh, Cornel West, that clip was, was really nauseating just to take that term from Thomas in New York. He sounds so thoroughly white identified to hear him talk about Bernie Sanders as if he just floated down on the cloud like Jesus and he's going to save the world with his policies because, you know, he was a guy who was, um, uh, I guess, an example or an ode to Martin Luther King. I thought that was disgusting. I found that uh, similar to when, um, I forget which, which uh, famous person had compared, um, Oh, it was uh, Dale Hughley comparing uh, Ellen DeGeneres to uh, Rosa Parks or some nonsense like that. And, I mean, it's just, it's nauseating to see these black people. And it's almost, it's almost like, I don't even think he realizes how much of an agent provocateur he is being by just kicking up all of this uh, hoopla around Bernie Sanders and making him look like this Jesus figure that's going to come in and ultimately help black people when, he couldn't even take take a proper stance on reparations, even though I don't believe in reparations, and I've talked about that before. Um, so I just wanted to touch base on those things, and um, also, oh yeah, the, the last thing was the the bathroom situation with the uh, the youth people of transgender, LGBTQ, whatever alphabetic letter they throw in tomorrow, um, using the bathroom with regular people uh, that are uh, that are not gender confused creates even more gender confusion. And I saw, I read an article this past week about the same thing. And they talked about how, uh, they were in some states they have, and they had a sign that showed like all of the different sexual symbols and the confusion symbols all mixed in as one symbol. And they allow men and women to use the bathroom at the same time. And I thought, the um the separate gender bathrooms were bathrooms where the most debased sexual things were taking place. So imagine if they start having bathrooms where, you know, LBGTQ, you know, um heterosexual and every other type of sexual they create are going to the same bathroom, the kinds of things that are gonna take place in there. And then also this just 
like it really facilitates in young children the whole concept of gender confusion becoming the norm. And again, it's psychosocial conditioning towards genocide for black people to be involved in any, excuse me, anything of that nature. And um, I just find it to be, I just hope it doesn't spread, but I can just see it because, like you said earlier, the, the bills are passing holistically with all white invo- involvement, not black people, you know, at all. Um, so it, they just have the power to do what they're going to do, and we have to basically teach our children so that when they come into contact with these sorts of things, they're able to keep their sanity and um, move forward as, as, as best they could in the system of white supremacy with some balance and non-gender confusion as in, in their future. Um, thank you very much, and I'll mute my line. For sure. That was, Can uh, I be heard? Chris, yes, sir, a firefighter in Florida. I just wanted to say real quick, that was uh, Chris Rock, not D.L. Hughley, who made that comparison, uh, Ellen DeGeneres and Rosa Parks. Uh, Thanks for the correction. For sure. Uh, Retired firefighter? Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus and uh, the callers. Just to report on some uh, conversations and thoughts that I had this week. Uh, I have been constantly in conversation and or activity, constructive activity, generally working on uh, attempts to practice counter-racism with uh, one individual for uh, well over 25 years, uh, who's also a retired firefighter. Uh, And uh, since we've been retired, uh, we call each other, get in contact with each other, and and, uh, uh, talk about a subject and and with the idea of coming to some kind of uh, uh, better understanding of that particular subject. Well, this week... Uh, he uh, texts me, uh, and basically he's, he uh, wrote, and I quote, perhaps it's because of my sensitivity, but I seem to run into more and more, and this is his word, interracial couples hauling nappy-headed white babies around like trophies. I know to each his own, but it still strikes me as surreal. And at the same time that he texts me, on this subject matter, I was I was uh, listening to Cal's archives of Dr. Welsing, and I believe it was Mr. Thomas out of New York who asked her, who who had not not made the statements that that uh, my my friend made, but he put it in a question to Dr. Welsing. I believe it was it was, it was Mr. Thomas. I could be wrong uh, on the almost the same subject. And uh, so I, I texted him back saying, damn, the timing of your text and the subject was, is uncanny. I was listening to an archive of Dr. Welsing, and someone put the same statement you made in a question to her. And basically what her answer was, her answer was because uh, I believe the question was about white females who have possession of non-white black babies. And basically, she was she was uh, explaining to everyone about the uh, the practice and the the negative outcome. Basically, you have a person that is almost permanently confused, and the white woman also at the same time is teaching that black child that you are not a black person. 
you know, you're something else of these other confusing uh, uh, descriptions that races have brought up over the last uh, 40, 40 or 30 years uh, of inter, interracial or, or, or whatever, you know, these type of uh, classifications uh, that are confusing. Uh, I also, so I put down what I thought was my answer to what he was uh, talking about. And I have, I had in bold letters, the white woman is behind this deliberate evil activity. It produces maximum confusion. And I have in parentheses, not genetic annihilation. There's a reason why I put that in there. Uh, in this case, because we are controlled by white supremacy. And I, and I put last but not least, I hope I, I'm following logic. The reason why I mentioned about not genetic annihilation, because as long as we're under the system of racism white supremacy, white people who, who uh, aggressively practice having sex with us, they have that under control. They have that under control as long as there's a system of racism white supremacy. They have it under control. It's a deliberate strategy. Uh, and I think I'm, sta I'm standing in, the li in, in, uh, uh, in line of logic. It's a deliberate strategy that some of them practice. Is there, is there a risk on their behalf? Yes, it is a risk. But white people in risk is almost synonymous because in order for them to stay in this supreme position on us on a global level, they have to, have, they have to take risks. They have to take risks, and they have been taking risks since the beginning of the system of racial white supremacy in that light. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to go to another subject that, that constantly gets me nauseated over what is popular over every type of news uh, programming, whether it's radio or television that, that we listen to. Everybody is is uh, talking about the presidential elections, and you have these, what, four or five white people. And there are some non-white people who, in my opinion, are confused with these thoughts talking about vote or die, uh, 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 mentioning about uh, some of our uh, past ancestors who were killed in the line of, uh, of uh, practicing counter-racism like Dr. King and Malcolm X, saying that these people died for you, for you to vote. I mean, to me, in my opinion, it, it, it actually is a silly, stupid statement to make because, first of all, it's not true. And I think I heard someone say, and it may have been uh, you, Gus, that uh, 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 voting, if anything, was only was basically a strategy that they thought would, would assist and help. And at the same time, and, and my thoughts to anybody, if you have the will to want to vote, vote. But if you don't, I am not against you at all as far as that version of voting. Because I guarantee you by now, it is where, I, where the part of the world I'm at is almost 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. I have voted at least about 40 or 50 times on something. You know, so... I, you know, it's a broader understanding to that. And to narrow, to narrow that whole process, especially when it's five white people that we're thinking about, some of us are thinking about, it's absolutely ridiculous, in my opinion. It's absolutely ridiculous as far as that concerned. And as long as we've been under the system of racist white supremacy, 
you would figure that we would have figured that out by now, as far as that concerned. And 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 if anything, vote vote personally that you're going to practice counter racism. Vote on that, you know, on a daily basis, and vote on being codified on how we communicate face to face, physically and or uh, uh, verbally with one another. And that's that's all I have to say. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, other folks, uh, if you dialed in and we have not heard from you, uh, you should go now. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Good evening, um, Gus, to the callers and to the listeners. Um, I just wanted to um, comment on a couple of things in the clips and also on some of the things the um, other um, callers have said. Um Regarding Dr. Cosby, this is the female caller in New York. I don't know if I said that. Regarding Dr. Cosby um, and the Smithsonian, I think I called in about, I think it was in December. Yeah, that's when I went um, to D.C. to see uh, Dr. Wilson in her last lecture. Um, at the Smithsonian, I think I mentioned this, uh, Dr. Cosby's artwork was on display at the Smithsonian African Art Museum. That was back in, the Dece- in December, and there was a... Uh, a uh, tacky disclaimer at the entrance of his of his exhibit stating that the Smithsonian does not condone his behavior as if he had already been convicted. So I'm not surprised that his legacy um, as an entry into that building that's dedicated to um, black people underneath the system of white supremacy that they're going to call an African-American museum um, will need to mention his current legal situation. And uh, I'll say again that I'm not aware that Woody Allen's films, Marv Albert's, te- Marv Albert's telecast, that white football player, I can't remember his name, but he was accused of rape. I think he recently retired. Um, I'm not um, aware that um, any of their discussions were mentioned um, at any of their performances or uh, after um, they had done what they were, they did. So, um, yeah, it's, does not seem to um, be balanced there. Um, and regarding that building, that the world is going to come to um, muse at the tacky treatment that blacks suffer underneath the um, system of white supremacy here in America. I can also remember at Dr. Um, Wilson's last lecture, there was um, one of the students stood up and compared it. She said that it looked like a black vagina right next to that phallic symbol of uh, the Washington Monument. That is going to be the only dark building on the, the, um, the Washington Mall, other than the Smithsonian, which is a red building. But this building is very, very, uh, it's, it's dark. It's a dark building, and it has a weird shape. And it does kind of remind you of a vagina. Um, in this building, uh, I saw something on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. They're going to have Emmett Till's casket, um, shackles and chains and, of course, Bibles and fiddles um, that the world is going to come and to, to muse at. And, of course, there's going to be some sort of water there um, as some sort of uh, – so you, you can go and, I guess, um, reflect sort of like that disgusting water thing that they have at the um, – World Trade Center, the footprints of the World Trade Center where they have the two big holes and they have water there. What they need is some psychiatrists in that building and some psychologists and some counselors 
um, if they were really concerned and really um, um, really understood what they were uh, putting there. I have a friend who has a um, business called the Slave Dwelling Project, and what he does is he goes all over the country and tries to preserve uh, slave dwellings. Well, the Smithsonian curated actually went into one of these um, uh, plantations. And I don't think they got any permission for it, from what I understand, because he was pretty upset about it. And they removed an entire slave cabin to put into this museum. So, I mean, I mean, this is me personally. I have, like, reservations about stuff like this. So, I mean, for the world to come and look at, while we're still underneath this system um, and nothing is being um, uh, done about it, nobody has any answers to solve the problem, just to me uh, adds to it. But that's just my personal opinion. Um, concerning the evictions, um, as, the, as uh, one of the previous callers mentioned, I think it was uh, Mr. Demery Fourth. Mr. Fuller always stated that black people stay under the move, uh, um, on the move under the system of racism and white supremacy. He also said that um, years ago, I heard him say in this program that years ago, that black people um, in certain rural areas had something called a shack by the track with a room in the back. And that was for other black people who had been displaced because of the system of white supremacy. In addition, he also stated that we should expect to be displaced as long as you have color in your skin under the system of racism and white supremacy so that we shouldn't collect a lot of unnecessary things in our homes because when we get displaced, we don't have anywhere to put them, we can't take them with us, and we really don't have any place to go, so we don't have any place to put it. So it ends up on the sidewalk, and, you know, and it's just a waste. But I just had a, uh, it just came across my mind when I heard that, um, uh, that news clip, um, where is the generation that we have now um, that may have a shack by the track with the room in the back? And um, from what I see, it's not my generation. It certainly is not the generation that's after me, this Generation X, because I know here in New York City, you got five or six of them living in one apartment because they can't afford the rent. So from what I can see, it's like our elders that are in their 70s and 80s who were always not really uh, uh, pursuing material wealth, who were satisfied with what they had. But they also have, um, they have enough for not only themselves, but if there was somebody who needed to stay with them, they had a shack in the, by the track with a room in the back, you know. So I just thought that that was very interesting as well. And to add um, to what Ross was saying about uh, Mr. Clinton and white validation, one more point um, associated with Clinton and his white validation was that after he left office in 2001, he set up his main office on 125th Street in Harlem. And everybody was just so excited about that. I mean, all the he was going to all the chicken places and getting his picture taken. I mean, it was it was, that was, it was like a real a circus, I and mean, it was like that for a long time. I don't know if he still has an office yet. I really doubt it, but that was one of the things he did. And I think he left he left office in January, and that was the same month 
that Hillary Clinton became senator of New York. So I'm, I, you know, along with what Michelle Alexander was saying, um, I think that we should all keep that in mind as well. That that you know, and she was here. Um, I think it was yesterday. You know, again, just pandering. It really is nauseating. You know, and that's all I had. I'll mute my line. For sure. Uh, other folks who dialed in who have a hand up who wait we have not heard from. Um, yeah, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay, um, well, I just want to make a statement. Um, I, I, I don't believe that white people are actually human. I think that they are more along the line of beasts that are lower than animals. And um, this has been, this statement has been a, a bone of contention with me for a long time, and I just want to get your opinion on it as well. I've had a lot of many arguments and uh, conversations with black people who say that uh, racism is, they think racism is taught, and I say it's inbred. I think it's it's part of who they are. Um, I, I try not to call them people. I, I have to catch myself. I refuse. To, I call them white, soldier, race soldiers or whites or any kind of derogatory terms so sometimes when I'm talking to other black people. And uh, I just want to get your opinion on that. Do you think that racism is taught, or do you think it's inbred? Uh, if you're asking me, uh, I yeah. don't. I don't know. Uh, I've heard uh, different views on that. I've heard white people uh, come down. I've heard white people say that it's inbred, and I've heard white people say that it's taught. I certainly have heard uh, non-white people who take both sides. It's not something that I would, uh, I'm not saying that you did, but it's not something that I would uh, get into uh, debates or what have you with other uh, non-white people. Uh, At the end, uh, I have just concluded, regardless, uh, white people are not going to voluntarily stop practicing racism, regardless of uh, whether it's something that's in them genetically or whether it's something and it, and it could be both uh, to even add that in that it could be uh, a little bit of both going on regardless of, of how they get this information they are not going to stop practice racism and they're not ignorant those I think are the, the two main points that I try to stay focused on uh, and what we need to do to solve this problem uh, but it's not something that I you know engage in uh, debates with other non-white people or even white people uh, about whether it's inbred or whether it's something that they uh, have learned that there uh, the the main conclusion I try to get through is that there is no process that whites are going to voluntarily go through of quote unquote unlearning white supremacy that is not going to happen yeah okay thank you that's all I have to say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, other folks uh, who we have not heard from did y'all have commentary can I be here? Uh, was there a female caller? Just making sure I couldn't really hear the other person. Yes, there was. Oh, okay. Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Good evening to the host. Good evening to the other callers. Um, I just wanted to make a few comments in respect to comments that have been made. Um, to the caller, the female caller who just spoke about white people, usually how I identify them is um, I call them entities. So um, I don't consider them human either. So that's what I refer to them as entities. It's interesting that um, one of the callers had spoke about a debate between brother polite 
and a Jewish guy, and he spoke about the plant um, medicine. Um, I believe he was talking about ayahuasca, which contains DMT, the substance DMT in it. And I had recently attended an ayahuasca retreat. Now, I did it to um, work on some issues. And so when I went to this retreat, naturally, I was one of two black people. I expected to actually be the only black person in attendance. And from my experience, I did not see where being at a retreat, a weekend retreat, um, helped with any type of racial issues. As a matter of fact, because I was the only black person and I had did some research on the plant medicine and there are particular, um, after taking the medicine, there are certain types of reactions that people have had to it. And because of that, I pretty much kind of isolated myself from people. So I did not want to be sitting next to a white person or laying down next to a white person because since it was a weekend retreat, we spent the weekend in a cabin. And if for some reason they have a strange reaction to it, I didn't want them to tap into any kind of racial issues that they had and then all of a sudden take it out on me. So I made it a point to just be by myself. And one of the things I had mentioned during the retreat was that, you know, I have a fear. I didn't specify that I had a fear of white people, but I just said, you know, I have a fear of being around certain types of people. I tried to be as coded as possible when I spoke to them, being around certain types of people and maybe um, I know that there's certain reactions that are to be anticipated. So I just pretty much kept to myself um, most of the time. So I didn't see where that brought people together. As a matter of fact, one of my experiences during this retreat was there was this white woman who I guess thought she was just Earth's mother. You know, these white women who walk around with locks in their hair and they want to put on a head wrap and they want to wear these long dresses and skirts and they try to act like they're so serene and just so, you know, earthbound and earthly. And so she had an issue with me. And I knew precisely why her issue, what her issue was with me was because she's trying to be a black woman and there's a real black woman on the premises who has her hair in a natural hairstyle and that was definitely intimidating. So at one point she had did something where she walked over me and she didn't know that I was awake and I was aware of what she did. I, had, I was in a sleeping bag and I had the covers over me. And so I approached her and I said something to her, but um, I don't see where that plant substance from my own personal experience where that would reun that would connect people. It it doesn't happen, you know. As um, was mentioned before, whether racism is innate, whether racism is learned, it exists. And from my personal experience, most white people, if not all that I've ever encountered, 
they all, for whatever reason, they all understand, whether they're children, whether they're adults, they all understand what whiteness means in this world and what whiteness means when they interact with non-white people. That'll be all. Thank you. For sure. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, who had a hand up that we have not heard from, if you all have commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, I, missed, I missed some of the cast, but the, here's some of my thoughts. I heard some of the callers talking about Bill Clinton, and I, I realized last week for your compensatory call-in, you had um, a picture of the former racist white supremacist mayor of Toronto, Rob Ford. That's one of the things that disappoints me here, just to give you all a global perspective, is that even though there are Black Lives Matter protests going on in Toronto about police murders, I find it very interesting that a lot of the black people that are in Toronto who aren't or less important tend to be very focused. We're very focused on Rob Ford's funeral and think because, and, and Rob Ford, this is where I say he's very much like Trump in terms of him being outspoken. That's how he was, but he has Clinton's aspect in terms of that white validation thing. Like Toronto, we have a very predominantly Jamaican background population, including yours truly. And one of the things Rob Ford would do is he would do random acts where he talks in Jamaican Patois. He'll use the slang, and then and, and Jamaican people just love it. And they think that he, he, he loves black culture. And when he does something racist, we say, oh, he's not really racist. It's, it's just a mistake. And I think it goes back to why we need to understand all white people are racist, white supremacists, and that when they engage with our culture, it's a tactic and a fetish or a fetishism. And the next thing I want to talk about is Cornell West clip. Um, I had the privilege of hearing Cornel West speak, and the way he understands white supremacy, I've always found it problematic, though I like some of his observations. One person, and you, you know how, how big I am about looking at integration as a fundamental problem. One woman, one black woman did ask him in the audience, I remember when I saw got to see him speak, she asked him, you know, she quoted Martin Luther King's speech about the burnt, comment about integration being a burning house. And he reiterated, I, I can't remember, his answer was very ambiguous. And when I asked him about, you know, black people using their own ideas and focusing on themselves, he was very insistent on this idea that all people must be liberated. And I saw another article that I posted on the, on the Facebook page today where an author argued that white people have no space in black liberation because they cause problems. And I saw a whole bunch of white people getting upset and some black people, you know, being very bothered, particularly intellectual black people. And I find that this all people thing, the idea that black people have to liberate all people or everybody else and we can't actually focus on ourselves, I think that's only further confusing us from focusing on what we need to do. I, I cannot stand these all people arguments. And I think it's the ultimate tool of confusion and it affects all black people, even when we're informed about racism, about really how white supremacy works. And one, I, I don't know if you, because um, I heard one of the callers mentioned white women in dreadlocks, and I thought about the incident at San Francisco State where a black woman was trying to explain to this white male student about what, how his dreadlocks represent cultural appropriation, and he wasn't having it. And white supremacist media tried to make it focused on whether she, she was, as she was, this, this black woman just attacking this poor white guy who's innocent, 
and you know he he doesn't already know, he's just wearing his hair for freedom even though he makes a comment after saying dreads doesn't belong to the colored community so it just goes to show you when white supremacists when they engage our culture it's really about domination for them it's really about really it just comes down to dominating not this this silly idea that we have that whites engaging culture is them being open-minded and crap it's a bunch of nonsense and those are my thoughts long live rob ford long live rob ford um <laughs> Let's see. Uh, we have probably time, unless folks are really quick. Uh, we probably have time for uh, one more person, unless you know you just have like a sentence or two you want to get in. We have about three minutes before we get to workplace racism. Uh, are there other folks who uh, dialed in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Peace to all the callers on the line, to the host, and to the platform. Uh, I just want to speak real quick about three things that I heard so far. Uh, the LGBT uh, bathroom confusion, and then I also heard two female callers who referenced um, that, you know, white people were not human, something of that nature. (laughs) And so I'm looking here on page 173 in the United Independent Compensatory Code System Concept book, and it says, do not argue about and or speak against any religion except the religion of racism and white supremacy. And then I turn to page 174, and it says, speak and act to oppose the belief that racism and white supremacy is God's religion or is a part of God's religion. So I said all of that to say that I think one of the things that makes the system of racism and white supremacy a system of master terrorism is the fact that uh, that they are close in relationship to what people would refer to as Satan or the devil, etc. And I say that because in most of the narratives that they give about this devil or Satan, it appeared once the people had got created. So I'm just following the logic about this hatred or race that extends from the alleged devil or Satan that is against the human race or mankind or womankind, etc., and then how that directly connects to the system of racism and white supremacy and how it's practiced in all areas of people activity, that area included. And I think that that is kind of under the radar, but it definitely felt and I think that, that, that those comments that I just made speaks exactly to what those two female callers were asking questions about or referencing and also the whole LGBT community thing because if the devil is a sworn enemy to you and Satan is a sworn enemy to you, then it's okay for us to say that racism and white supremacy as well is a sworn enemy to us. And so I just see that as being logical uh, I may be in error, but I just wanted to share my thought process with the rest of the callers. Right on. Uh, that will take us to workplace racism. Workplace racism. Uh, folks have commentary that they would like to share. Uh, the number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564 943 
uh, if you have commentary on workplace racism. And uh, again, just a listener had shared uh, if you have previous workplace experiences um, reflecting back on things that happened, uh, if you were a little bit less uh, or if you were a bit more confused at that time about white supremacy and you realize looking back like, okay, I would have done this or I would not have done this or I would have asked this question or this is how I would have handled this situation, uh, that that might be helpful uh, to some listeners as well who uh, are younger and don't have as many uh, workplace experiences just to know the type of things uh, that potentially can happen to victims of racism and to have some uh, possible responses so that they already know some strategies for how to deal with these type of things, uh, questions to ask uh, that that uh, can be very helpful. I guess already has been helpful uh, to some listeners because they've said that they have appreciated. So if you can uh, kind of reflect back, that would be great. Uh, and there was an audio segment that I played uh, in Connecticut uh, where uh, they had various uh, black people. They were being mistreated. Some of them were born in the state. Some of them were not. They were all being subjected to white supremacy uh, in the whites. Uh, this was in Connecticut, so I guess it would be pause for Omar Thornton. If folks don't recall, this was the black male in Connecticut, uh, 2010. Uh, he shot and killed, is reported to have shot and killed uh, about eight people. Uh, in uh, his work environment uh, where he alleged that they were practicing racism against him. Uh, and then he uh, took his own life. He had a 911 call that was uh, played and got up a lot of attention. But this was a pretty major event back in the summer of 2010. But uh, I thought it was significant that uh, one of the black males, I guess uh, someone in his family, had taken a photograph with Usain Bolt, the uh, gold medalist uh record setting uh track runner uh track runner uh for Jamaica and they took the photograph and photoshopped it and had uh a black person chasing uh honey boo boo with a piece of fried chicken that this is what whites are doing on the job uh that the racism white supremacy and terrorizing all sorts of tackiness and terrorizing black people uh that this seems to be one of their main activities when they should be working and figuring out ways to make things more efficient uh, on the job, this is what they're doing, figuring out ways that we can target and abuse, molest uh, black coworkers. Uh, just to kind of keep that uh, in mind, this is the environment that you likely are going to be going into. These are the whites that you are around, just to keep that in mind at all times. Uh, folks have commentary, workplace racism, I guess, especially if we haven't heard from you at all, that would be good. But workplace racism, uh, feel free to share. Can I be heard? Uh, I think I heard two or maybe even three different people. Um, let's see. I guess, did anybody comment who has not shared at all? Uh, do we have anybody who hadn't shared at all who wanted to comment on workplace racism? Um, yes, maybe her. Yes, sir. Okay. Greetings, Gerson, to the rest of the callers. So in my English class, we are reading this book called Kendrick by um, Octavia Butler, who is a black author. And it's a really great book. So the book is really about, um, it's a science fiction book, but the book is really about um, this girl, this black woman whose name is Edena, and she lives in uh, Pasadena. The year is 1967, and um, she lives with her white husband, whose name is Kevin Franklin. Um, so throughout periods of time, she ends up um, having these really blurry visions and ends up going back in time. Uh, to save this little white boy whose name is Rufus Whalen, and his dad owns a slave plantation in Maryland. Um, so 
she ends up saving him throughout periods of time. It started when he was four and he was drowning. That's when she first experienced the time trap link. Um, so later on, uh, she starts to get to know the boy and what's, um, where she is and what year it is um, and how to get home. But then she finds out it's 1815 and she's in Maryland. Uh, so she starts to get to know some of these slaves around. And um, she also got to meet his mother. The, and to let you know, the little boy's name is Rufus. Um, so the mother, Margaret Wayland, she is um, she's very cruel. And um, she... Um, she likes to mistreat black people for no reason on the plantation. And, um, I think she's the main cause of why, um, Tom Whalen, the um, plantation owner sells most of slave. Um, and that is when I learned, that is how I learned, um, white women are more dangerous than white men. Well, that's where I got a better, um, explanation of it. And that's all I want to share. Thank you for letting me share fascinating uh, I have read that book more than once uh, we even did a program talking about that book and uh, the author the late uh, Octavia Butler she uh, was a resident here in Washington State um, I was gonna if you I don't if you're reading this for class uh, I know a question that a text-based question when I say a text-based question uh, meaning there's an exact passage in the book when Dana uh, this is sci-fi right uh, this novel so when she comes back to the future from having been on the plantation and she's telling her husband, her white husband, uh, Kevin, she's telling him about her adventures with Rufus and things that he said. Uh, he eventually tries to rape her later in the book, Rufus, uh, this little white boy that she saved his life many, many times. Uh, Kevin, her husband makes a comment that's very similar or he, in fact, the way he phrases it, she's telling him, uh, I think Rufus had said something to the effect, like, I own you. You're my property. That's the way he was talking to Dana, the black female, the main character. And her white husband says, hmm, that sounds like something I would say. Uh, and I would say, if I was in a class, I would use that that statement. And I can get you the exact page if you're you know, so interested. But I would ask, is Kevin a racist? Uh, and what do we make of this statement? It seems like there is a comparison between... Kevin, who is like 20th century, 20th century, supposedly a good white man, not racist, him saying that he would have said pretty much the same thing that Rufus said, who is a 19th century slave owning brute. Um, that might be a question that I would ask. Is Kevin a racist and what comparisons are being made between Kevin and slave owning Rufus? Uh, if you're so interested, um, that's it. Did you make did you make any comments, I guess, if you all are reading this in class uh, about what this book has uh, informed you about the role of white women on the plantation or in the system of racism in general? Well, we haven't yet, though. I think we're going to have a Socratic seminar soon uh, coming up. I don't know when, but we might. But I, uh, I might bring that up. Um, the people are where I'm at because um, I finished the book early and um, so I just got to wait until people finish the book for the seminar. Right on. I will, I'll, uh, I'll see if I can uh, get the exact page and uh, email it to your uh, mom. She can, you can check it out if you're, so you might already have it. You seem like you're a high level scholar, so you might already have it, but just to, uh, 
check out that that passage because I that was something when I read the book the second time that stood out to me and and I thought was really significant. That's a, a passage that I would I would highlight if I were in a class and we were discussing this book. Uh, we're supposed to be scholars and analyzing the literature. Fascinating. Keep us up when you all do the the seminar. You have your class discussion. Wow. Uh, keep us updated. Uh, let us know uh, any of the remarks or, or what comes out of the, the general discussion that you all have about the book. All right. I will. Thank you. For sure. For sure. Always great here from our young listener. Uh, school is your job. That's what they uh, have told me for years. Uh, if folks had any comments uh, on that or if you had your own instances of workplace racism. I know we had other folks who spoke up as well. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Well, keeping in step with how dangerous white women are, I work at a teaching hospital, and the president happens to be a victim, black male. The chief operating officer and executive vice president, the same person that holds those two titles, happens to be a black victim female. Um, The executive assistant who the executive vice president happens to be a black female. I also work in the office as an administrative assistant. However, there is a white woman that works in our office. What I've been told about this white woman's background is that she used to work or she had a prominent role in university police. She still holds this position but she is supposed to be, I don't know what this title, what it exactly means, but she's supposed to be the special assistant to the executive vice president. I don't really know what that means, but she also assists the president. So she's supposed to be his assistant as well. What I've been told about this white woman is that prior to this black president coming in, there was a white president who had held the job. He had also been a medical doctor, and he had been reported as a racist by another white person, another white doctor who works at the teaching hospital, and he lost his title. However, he's still employed at the teaching hospital. But this particular white woman who who works in the office where I work, She held a job, as I said, as a top-level person with the university police. Once the black people came into the job of president, she decided, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start volunteering in the office. And while she started volunteering, as a result, she was hired to take on the role. Now, she still has her position of being a top-level employee in university police. However, she has this job as a special assistant. And the president, the current president of this teaching hospital, his contract had not been renewed. Despite him doing a stellar job, everyone that I encounter has nothing but good things to say about him. However, one of the things that they often mention is that As a result of this white woman not taking meetings with certain political figures or not just not just not doing her job, 
making appointments that the doctor needed in order to get funding, in order to get whatever else was needed because it's a state university, it's a state um, hospital. So as a result of her evading certain people, some of these politicians, most of them have been black, as a result of her not making these meetings, not keeping these meetings, not following up, the president, his contract had not been renewed. So I had mentioned to the president the other day while the white woman was out of the office, there are many examples, but I'll just mention this example. Um, we had gotten a call from one of the city delegation offices, one of the congressmen, actually. And the congressman's assistant said, listen, I've been calling for over a month now. I've been trying to make this appointment so the president could sit down with the delegation for this particular county. And I haven't heard back from anyone. And so I mentioned it to the president. He said, oh, well, you know, just let them know that we're aware of it. His assistant was out of the office once again. Let them know that we're aware of it and she will handle it. So the black executive assistant who I share in office space with, she said, well, to me, if she was handling it, it would have already been handled. The problem is, is that he takes up for her. Then I'm like, okay, because I'm wondering, why does this woman still have her job? Because she's made a lot of how she quotes it, this white woman. She calls anytime anybody makes a mistake in the office a move. M-U-F-U. Basically, Mufu is the name of an African man that works in another one of the office. So I overheard her making a joke with one of her white colleagues. Oh, <laughs> I made a mistake. I Mufu'd. Come to find out when I was new to the job, I said, I'm like, what is that? What does that mean? And then I finally got introduced to Mufu. I found out that Mufu was an actual person. In any regard, this black president who's taking up for this white woman comes to find out he's married to a white woman. And I guess, in, exactly, I guess in that particular situation, any white woman, he must see as his white wife. And it is, he feels like it's his appointed duty to protect her. Now, the situation is the executive vice president She's very stressed out, and she's stressed out as a result of this white woman. Now, the president of this teaching hospital that I work for, he was in Washington. He came down to New York, where I'm at, and he brought the executive vice president with him. So I'm thinking to myself, if this woman is so important to you, why would they continue to hold and keep this white woman? But... All in all, black people really aren't in charge. It doesn't matter what title or position that you hold. It's really white people are that white people that are in charge because this white woman is in everything. She knows everything. She makes it her appointed duty to know everything. She has people in various offices. If documents are supposed to come to the executive vice president who I also mentioned is the chief operating officer. She has to sign a lot of documents. If documents come in for her to sign, they're supposed to go to her executive assistant, not the special 
assistant because the special assistant, who is this white woman, her job currently is really to take care of the stuff for the president. So what happens is a lot of times the doc, she tells people, she contacts people, she tells them, you bring those documents to me and then I'll give it to the executive assistant. And she's very bold about it. The executive vice president went on vacation. She'll be coming back next week. She pretty much said, I don't want this woman knowing my business. So while she's been, while in her absence, She's been calling different departments and telling people, you need to send this paperwork to me, even though the the executive assistant got express orders. I don't want this woman knowing my business. And the executive vice president has to call different departments and tell them, listen, make sure that these documents go to my executive assistant. Do not let them go to this white woman. But this white woman has attempted successfully to intercept that. And she actually was so bold as to go to the executive assistant and tell her, listen, I spoke to so-and-such and so-and-so in human resources, and can you just keep me updated and inform me on what's going on? Now, she got express orders not to tell this woman anything, but this woman went behind her back covertly contacting the director of human resources and telling her and direct and calling up other people in human resources so much so that a person from human resources came into our office on Friday, had documents hiding behind her back, asked if this white woman was in her office, walked into the white woman's office, gave her the documents. And then the white woman, after she was done sorting through the documents, gave the documents over to executive assistant. This woman, I mean, (laughs) I don't know what to say other than this is absolute terrorism and the person that has the ability to do something is not willing to do it because he's in a relationship, he's in a tragic arrangement. There's more, but that's all I'm going to say. Thank you guys for listening. Tragic indeed. Uh, if other folks have uh, questions uh, or analysis of that, uh, feel free uh, before we move on to the next one. I was just going to say, number one, in my opinion, the tackiness of Mufu uh, to make that a new term uh, where she is practicing racism uh, and just the logic of that where she takes the name of a non-white person, a black male, uh, and uses his name uh, where that now is supposed to represent an error something being defective, a mistake of some sort, where it's consistently associating uh, blackness, and in this case, a specific black person associating his name with the concept of an error. That, in my, I mean, just massive act of racism uh, and the the importance because i think you said when you heard the term you were like what what does that mean the importance just of asking because that will happen a lot of times where people white people will be practicing racism and sometimes it will just be with the words that they're using but we don't know what, what they're saying uh well, i always think it's great like immediately first time you hear it what does that mean now we'll all know oh okay move food made a mistake got it okay and then we can we can proceed with a lot more clarity about who we're dealing with uh, I also, in this situation at least, uh, I'm not sure this white woman uh, secretary or whatever her official uh, title is. Um, 
I don't know who has the ability to fire her or reprimand her or, you know, get these problems solved so that she's uh, handling appointments correctly and not evading people and what have you uh, that's seeming like uh, her deficiencies or even if these are not deficiencies, this might just be her willfully uh, being defiant or her willfully not trying to meet with these other black people. Um, and it's impacting adversely other black people that she is supposed to be working for, working with uh, in this at this teaching uh, hospital. I don't know if the black person that she's supposed to be working for, if he uh, controls whether or not she's employed. Uh, it sounds like he's kind of in a tenuous employment situation himself if his contract was not renewed. Uh, so I guess this would be another one when people talk about black supervisors uh, in terms of just recognizing who really has the authority in the system of racism, white supremacy. The black person that she is supposed to be working for, does he have the ability to get her terminated or does he have any uh, persuasion influence with regards to whether or not she remains employed or is reprimanded in any way? I would assume he's the president of the entire teaching hospital. And um, the fact of the matter is, is that this is something that she regularly do, does. And I believe that I don't think that it's accidental. I think that a lot of it is intentional. Um, I've seen where she has defied him. I've seen where she takes personal calls. Her office is right next to him, and she's very loud, and um, she has no consideration, you know, so. Mm. Nah. You were going to comment, Thomas, in New York? Oh yeah, oh man, this was this just made this just made this a classic episode of Mufu, man. That's just amazing. I wanted to have two questions, but um, before you know, uh, this dude that the black guy is suffering from you know, severe white validation disease. He has a white woman telling him that she loves him every day. So it's he's man. I mean, he that no wonder he's the president. And um, don't don't think the president got power. He's still a black man. Still people over the president, as we see in the country. And um, yeah, she he probably can't fire her. And don't be surprised if he's not sleeping with her. That um also could be attributed to the things too. My questions for you was one: Would you have picked up on the mufu if you didn't listen to the cows? Definitely, because when she said mufu. I thought to myself, what does that mean? And possibly, like maybe a week later, this man, Mufu, walked into the office and I said, oh, I got it. I got it. And I was like, wow, you know, that's really messed up. And unfortunately, I've heard her talk about Mufu and she's given Mufu the reputation that he's always making errors. He never gets anything right. And so I've actually heard, overheard from someone that, you know, that's how Mufu feels. Mufu feels as if he has the reputation that he's always messing up or Mufuing, as this white woman would say. So, um, I, yeah, definitely I would have gotten it because the connection came within less than a week's time when he walked into the office and he introduced himself to me because I had... Um, been new at the time. Uh, my second question was simply, um, 
can you describe Mufu? Because I, I, mean, I, I think I'm, I'm just impressing in what a white person. I mean, is he very dark skin? I mean, what, can you describe him for us? I would say Mufu is medium dark skin. He has um, ver- he has quite Afroid features. Um, he has a thick African accent. Um, he's a very pleasant man. Um, but I think that that's, he seems to have, um, from what I gather from just my minimal interactions with him, he appears to have a very laid back kind of attitude. Um, he comes in, he smiles and it's like, okay, well, people have this impression of me. It is what it is. And, um, let's move on to the next thing. But, um, very, Yeah. That's about it. That's about it. I mean, he doesn't come in dressed in African garb or anything. He comes in dressed, you know, um, professionally, as white people would equate what professional attire is, you know, in a um, button-down shirt with a tie and dress slacks and shoes. Nothing out of the ordinary, nothing that would... Nothing that symbolizes um, any kind of African anything other than his accent and the way he looks. If you had to, like, pick somebody uh, well-known, like an actor or a politician, just somebody that we most people on this call have likely seen, um, just to give us an idea of, like, skin complexion, could you uh, pick somebody like, uh, I don't know, Wesley Snipes, Lil Wayne, Dick Gregory, Lupita Nyong'o, just to give us a kind of a comparison in terms of skin complexion? Okay, so if I had to pick someone, he's probably like maybe two or three shades lighter than Don Cheadle, and he kind of, he doesn't resemble Don Cheadle, but if I had to pick someone that we all can identify with, I would just say Don Cheadle, but he's two to three shades lighter. Okay, okay. The new Miles Davis flick, I think people know, (laughs) people know, I suspect, uh, Don Cheadle. Um, fascinating. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, I wanted to chime in on that because the whole Mufu comment is a way of niggerizing and stigmatizing him. So, like, that's like the nigger term. That's what it seems like to me. Like, she stigmatized him to the point where his name is synonymous with basically nigger and, um, and synonymous with uh, a person who is not able to accomplish anything of substance, um, something's mentally deficient about him and his performance. And um, I just find it fascinating that he's able to come in there, like you said, just be a layback um, black male in the midst of such hostility. And also with the fact that I, I was going to um, kind of mirror Thomas in New York, too, when he was saying that um, even though he's the president, he's really not in power. What it looks like to me is that she's saying, I'm not taking any orders from any niggas. I'm going to do what I want. And you basically can't do anything about it. And um, also him being married to a white female exemplifies how impotent you can be in the struggle for the liberation of yourself and your people when you're laying in bed with the enemy every night and looking into their eyes and getting white validation while she runs out every single day and practices terrorism against all the other black people in the world. It reminds me of um, the 
the guy who raped Abner Louima in New York City, um, Volpe, he actually said in court that he wasn't racist because he was sleeping with a black female. That was one of his defense tactics. And it just goes to show they can sleep with us, give us the Jesus Christ treatment in the bedroom, and then go out and, and literally just terrorize black people at every turn possible. And to me, he just exemplifies the impotence that comes with sleeping with the enemy. Um, I have my own workplace racism, but I, I just wanted to chime in on that because I just found this a fascinating story. Thank you. I have a question, if, if I can. Yes, sir. Yes, to the uh, female caller who brought up the uh, the uh, the issue. Uh, is this white female uh does she have anything at all to do with you uh, getting a raise or uh, uh, increase your with the attempts for you to increase your payment or anything like that? She signs my timesheet. Okay, based on the, the two questions I asked, the, the, can she uh, decline you from getting a raise or can she uh, directly participate in the process of you getting terminated? Um, honestly, I'm not really sure because I was hired through a temp agency, a staffing agency. I wasn't hired directly through the teaching hospital. Um, and I'm not sure. I really can't answer that question. Yeah. Well, it, it, dep it depends on on whatever, because I don't I don't know your personal situation, but I, I would say it probably would be important to, if you can, sign that out, it, to to be able to find it out, uh, because in in my uh, my experience, that's to be expected. That type of person, and especially white females, also, uh, that type of person is going to be. <laughs> going to be in all of all of our uh, different uh, employment, uh, uh, that, that type of white person and that type of personality. Uh, it, it, it's going to be on everybody's job, white, female, uh, rampaging around uh, with no restrictions at all on what she says or what she does. Uh, I've experienced it myself uh, through 27 and a half years. Uh, on one job, and I've seen it countless numbers of times. Uh, and in turn, if that person isn't, I would prepare myself for some sort of possible uh, unavoidable uh, connection with this person and do all I can that I would not be in the same uh, room with her and there's no one else in there at all. Uh, as far as conversations, there uh, it, it would be limited, uh, primarily dealing with uh, just job, whatever whatever job necessity conversations that need to take place. It need to take place, and kind of like just bear down with the process as long as you and or her are in contact with one another on on that job. That, that's, that's not the only thing I can think of as far as uh, what can be done from my, from my experiences. Well, first, let me just um, thank you and tell you that I really appreciate um, your suggestion. 
Um, I Now that I'm really thinking about it, I've been at the job for three years, and the person that assisted me in getting the job, referring me to the staffing agency, she had mentioned to me, she said, let me know when you reach the three-month mark. That way we can get you in. That way we can get you an increase in pay. So I believe that because I was hired through a staffing agency that it's probably on the staffing agency's part, but I will have to confirm that I will definitely, uh, I will definitely make attempts to do that um, on Monday and speak to um, the person that I work with at the staffing agency. Um, I do definitely try to keep the conversation to a minimum when I do speak to that woman. And for the most part, I really don't have to talk to her other than give her salutations like good morning and good afternoon or good evening or whatever the case is. But I do have to go to her to sign my time check. I mean, excuse me, my time sheet. So, um, and then if I have to leave early or if I need to come in late, I do have to speak with her. Even though she's not my supervisor, I do have to communicate with her and she'll be the person to approve it. So her role is very, I don't know, she has an interesting role because she's not my direct supervisor. I don't report to her, but she does have that control where she signs my time sheet, signs somebody else's time sheet, and I have to consult with her if I need to take time off or come in late or leave early. So, um the thing about it is that there's a lot of nepotism on that job, meaning that her husband also works at that job. I don't know whether or not her and the president have ever had a sexual relationship, but I have heard that her husband has made advances to at least one of the black women on the job. So her husband works there. Um, about two weeks ago, she had one of her son's friends interview there. She attempted about a month ago to get her sister. Her sister had an interview at the job. Um, A good friend of hers, she got a job there. Her neighbor used to work there. He recently retired. His daughter works there. So there's definitely a lot of nepotism and she... Not unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not unusual. Uh, on the, the job that I retired from, uh, you had uh, from from fire chief all the way down to firefighter, uh, family members uh, of, of of white people uh, all the way through. Uh, so uh, it's not not unusual. All of those things, as we go into them, we should expect them. We should expect that type of uh, uh, that things that may be written down on paper. It does not mean that white people have to abide by them at all. Absolutely. You know, and uh, because it's like war. It's, it's, it's war. Absolutely. Hey. I wanted to oh, uh, no. check. Hang on one second. I just wanted to check um, to see if there was. I, we got Roz, too, because I know he said he had a uh, workplace racism uh, situation. I just wanted to get in really quick. In these sort of situations where whites are making these sort of, sometimes it'll be a veiled uh, derogatory comment about other black people on the job where it might even be a singular black person that they're making this sort of slight uh, about and sometimes uh, we other victims we might laugh along with it in this joke like oh you know she's joking on you know Mr. Johnson or uh, Mrs. Smith who's another non-white person uh, don't think 
that just because they're joking on this one black person, if this is a quote unquote African, somebody from the continent or the Caribbean or wherever else that they happen to be from, don't think that they don't have the same opinion about you. They might be Mm -hmm. laughing about this singular black person, but they mean all the Negroes on the plantation, including you. And really, they end up getting even more fun out of it if they have Negroes who are laughing with them, mocking this one black person where they think, oh, I got these Negroes confused. They think that they are special. And I'm just talking about this one black person. And I mean them all. I've seen that happen uh, repeatedly. Uh, Make sure you don't fall into that. Uh, Is there anybody who has not shared at all who had something they wanted to get in? Workplace racism related. We got Ross. I'm going to make sure we get him, make time for him as well. Just anybody who hasn't shared at all. Did they have something they wanted to get in on workplace racism? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh uh, yes, uh greetings to best the host of listeners and callers. Um I had uh about two or three observations or uh, experiences. The first was I was heading up uh heading up to the first floor um on the beginning of the week and this this lady she works up on the the, the uh third floor and she had some Krispy Kreme donuts. So, you know, I had my bottle of water or whatever. And, you know, I'm trying to stick to my diet. So she asked me if I uh, wanted a donut. So, you know, I politely refused. And she says, oh, oh, come on, you know. You know, I have a whole dozen of them. You know, just take one. I said, I said, oh, no, no thanks, no thanks. So uh, I'm about to get off of the elevator. And she says, uh, well, you know, maybe next time uh, I'll be able to shove a couple of donuts in your mouth. So I just walked off and I just said, uh, wow, or something like that. And um, the, the, the second, the second uh, observation was there was uh, some emails that the uh, supervisor was sharing with the department. And, you know, like those mean caption things, there was two of them that stood out. One was about um, he was sending one to a white female uh, specifically about, I guess, like she she might have felt insecure about her belly or whatever, and people were saying that, you know, it looked like she was pregnant or whatever, but I guess she had gained weight. So the meme had the, uh, the Tyler Perry Medea character on it holding up a gun and saying, and the caption said, oh, say that I look pregnant again one more time. So, you know, that was, that was a tacky. And it, it was a uh, second meme that said it, w- it was a squirrel on it with his hands together, looking up in the caption on that said, um, Lord, please uh, don't let these stupid people breathe anymore. They are outnumbering us. So that could have been uh, a white supremacist cold speak. And that I'm thinking because, you know, this is a white person that um, sent these emails out. And uh, I asked a question in the meeting for this last incident, you know, because uh, when it was getting to the end of the meeting, he asked, um, well, does anybody else have any questions for the order? So in front of everybody, I just asked him, <laughs> I said, uh, just quick question, sir. And then I say, um, 
is everything that you're going to say and do going to be constructive? And then he says, no. <laughs> and then uh, people looked at me like, why would he ask that? And then so nobody else had any questions. So uh, that was pretty much it. And we just went on about our day. And uh, that's that's all I had. That is great. That is great. Wow. (laughs) Then and the expectation, uh, at least that's my the way I'm perceiving this, the expectation from the other people in the room, like, of course, we are not here to do everything that is constructive. Why would you think that? (laughs) That is is amazing. The uh, the the second uh, observation about the emails, in my view, that, you know, pretty major uh, Welsing moment right in line with white genetic annihilation, particularly if it was uh, the same uh, suspected racist who was sending out the emails with the, I guess, Tyler Perry image or whatever. Uh, and then the, you know, these people are breeding uh, too much. To me, that seems like something that uh, a white person who is uh, focused on and thinking about white genetic annihilation and is too many dark people on the planet, that seems like the type of content that they would send out if this all came from the same person. Yes, sir. Mm. Um, excellent question though, about, uh, are we going to be doing constructive things here today? And then him, no shame. Absolutely not. Why would you think that? Uh, <laughs> uh, did we miss anybody? I want to make sure I get, I uh, think Thomas had a question and then, uh, we'll get Roz's observations in, uh, before we wrap up. Did we miss anybody? Anybody have any, uh, workplace observations that they want to make sure we got in if we haven't heard from you at all? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, I wanted to comment on uh, <clears throat> I had that Capitol Hill shooting. I had uh, I've been working on Capitol Hill. I was up there at least twice a, a week for you know over three year period, and I know of at least three shootings on Capitol Hill and those Capitol Hill police shoot first and ask questions later. This guy, uh, Larry Dawson, I guess, uh, had a, a handgun and, you know, we all know what happens, you know, you banish a gun, but he had been known to by the Capitol police to disrupt you know, meetings before it was reported. But one interesting thing is once he was shot, then they was putting him in the ambulance. They had taken his pants off. And I just thought about uh, what Mr. Naylor Fuller says. You know, you always get this uh, trifling, you know, tacky, terroristic, you know, acts that people do. You know, I mean, why would they need to take the man's pants off? And it's just, you know, indicative of the humility that we have to endure at the hands of these terrorists. I'll mute my line. Hmm. Thank you for bringing up the shooting. That was important. I wrote that in the description. Uh, people read uh, the description for today's episode. I wrote about that incident. Uh, I think Thomas in New York, he emailed me about it because he was wondering about the racial classification of the uh, victim uh, in the case of black male, as you just stated. But 
uh, I, I too saw the photograph that you were talking about where they had removed his pants. I wasn't sure because he did get shot. I wasn't sure if that was as a result of the shooting uh, that, you know, somehow, cause I know sometimes uh, if there's a need for medical attention, if there's been a serious injury, sometimes they might remove certain garments or what have you, but I wasn't sure if that was a part of, of that or, or what happened. But I did note that they had removed his uh, pants uh, in the photograph that they had in the Washington post. Uh, and in addition, since we have talked about the uh, Miriam Carey situation, uh, where she was also shot and killed uh, nearly three years ago, 2013, they continued their campaign of what I would just this direct white supremacy in lying about what happened with Miriam Carey. They continued insisting that she rammed a gate, which is not true. And they continued insisting uh, that she was speeding through uh, Washington, D.C., which is not true. Uh, the Washington Post, they did a great report. Uh, where they broke down the speed, they looked at the the video and analyzed uh, where she went and all that and showed that she was not uh, speeding, that she was going the speed limit when she was uh, trying to get away from these uh, armed suspected race soldiers who eventually shot and killed her uh, that day back in 2013. But I absolutely that was a significant event that happened uh, this week on the Capitol as well. Black male being shot. And I did see that in the report as well, where they had said that I guess he had had some uh, situations previously, uh, in that area where he was protesting or whatever the case may be, I guess, where he was known to some of the people, uh, there for some of his, his previous activity. Uh, but I did note as well as with all of the white people who have come to Washington DC, particularly since president Obama has been in office and been disruptive and had, uh, firearms on them or in their vehicle or hop the fence or whatever else they've done, uh, generally they haven't been shot, even though this male did live, I guess that's maybe that's making progress as they say in the system of white supremacy, but these white people, for the most part, they don't even get shot. They just take them into custody and move on about their business. Whereas Miriam Carey shot and killed this black male, uh, shot and, uh, apparently pants were not apparently pants were removed. Um, can I help with the, uh, with the, uh, reasoning for that? The pants removal? Yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, generally, uh, because law enforcement are normally uh, pretty accurate in, in making contact when they are firing at someone, uh, as well as on cases where I've been on a lot with gunshot wounds, uh, it's hard to determine a lot of times on where the entry and exit wounds occurred at. So, therefore, almost... Uh, a lot of times uh, it is practical to strip off all of the victim's clothes to be able to find out on entry and exit wounds on the body uh, at the time. I'm pretty sure he was shot multiple times, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, because police are, are, are professional killers. Uh, 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 but that still doesn't give any excuse. I'm, I'm going to go back in support of what I've been hearing. I still doesn't give you an excuse that, that you have that picture in the paper. And, and so, therefore, I also agree with it's suspected that that was deliberate to put the picture in the paper. But it does happen a lot with a gunshot wound uh, because, like I said before, if not all the time you have external bleeding and it's not all the time it's obvious on where the person actually was shot, especially if you showed up, you know, fire rest, you showed up after the fact, I mean, you know, as far as that concerned. And I'm pretty sure he was shot multiple times. Mm. 
you can see the photograph. Hopefully that will help. Absolutely, absolutely. I appreciate. I saw the picture too. I saw the picture too, and and I I also thought the same thing. That as far as uh, in other words, what I'm doing, I'm criticizing the picture right. itself, the choice of putting the picture in the the national global news. Excuse <laughs> me. Hmm. That if you all people who didn't see the photograph that we're talking about, if you click, if you uh, look at the description uh, for uh, the program, the compensatory call in today, if you click his name, Larry Russell Dawson, it will take you to the Washington Post article and you'll see that photograph and they have it at the top of the page, uh, full color. Uh, you'll see the photograph that we're talking about. I can uh, repost it on Facebook if people, or I did, po- I posted it on Facebook earlier this week. I guess I could post it again, but I posted it the day the uh, event happened. Uh, I know I sent it to Thomas in New York and we were talking about this as well, but you can see it. I'm sure they were not the only news outlet that uh passed this photograph around uh definitely appreciate that mr uh, Demry for uh thomas in new york you were going to ask a question uh, i thought uh quickly and then we'll get um, Ross's yeah I, I was going to just make a comment um but yeah the firefighter was right because uh, unfortunately you know, growing up in jersey city i've been around a few shootings um more than i like to say and um every time they cut the person's pants off with some scissors on the scene I never seen them not do that. Um, the the um, comment I was gonna make because the situation that the lady was in was similar to the one I've been in. Um, unfortunately, a lot of my life, and I'm probably about to take another job where I'm working for a staffing firm. And um, that lady who signs your check, she has a lot of power. She can make one call to the staffing firm, and your job is gone. Um, she could just say, "I don't want her here anymore." It doesn't have to be an explanation. You don't work for her. Her contract with the staffing firm says she gets the person she wants to be there. And um, she signs the check. They're also responsible for your raise because that comes out of their budget, the staffing firm. So when I, every time I got a raise with the staffing firm, it came when they signed a new budget and they added it in to what the company is going to be paying them. They're not coming out their pocket with it. And that's all I was going to say. Absolutely. Uh, Ross, you can uh, wrap us up. Are you going to share, sir? Yes, sir. Um, I wanted to say, uh, yeah, she's the company liaison to the agency, and that's, she does have real quite a bit of power. And, um, yeah, I had uh, first uh, there, was, there was a show I listened to an archive years ago where you said something that kind of changed my life, and that's a workplace racism incident I'll talk about last but um, prior to that, I have an actual workplace racism incident from this past week. Um, but before I start, I remember this black female in New York talked about Bill Clinton in Harlem. And I just wanted to say uh, he does still have an office on 125th Street. I believe it's in the federal building, Adam Clayton Powell building. If it's not there, if I'm incorrect, but it's somewhere on 125th Street, he still has it. And also that he was the origin of the gentrification of Harlem. I remember when he first moved there, that's the first thing I said. I said, he's going to draw white people here. And people looked at me like I had eight heads. And then we look at today and Harlem is exactly what it is. So he's the actual origin of what drew white people to that area as black people were being so accepting of him and his uh, terroristic family. But now to get to my workplace racism incident, um, I've been talking about recently how things have been shifting on the job and they have this location in Arizona. So just last week I said that they're going to um, eventually put out uh put out a request to see who's willing to move to Arizona. Just got the email this past Friday. So <laughs> it's starting. So I'll just keep you posted as everything comes um comes to comes together and um I'll let you know how things uh 
are facilitated and what direction everything is going. But yes, um, I said it a week ago, and literally a week later, this Friday, they they turn around and they actually send out an email to everyone um, asking who was willing to to move to the Arizona location. Um, and with that location, they said that the people from New York will not lose their salary. So in Arizona, they basically can pay them half of what they're paying us, and they would be able to live as if they were getting double. Um, and these people would be making the double because they originally were in the New York office, and they're going to be transferring to Arizona, in which they'll be basically making enough to live fairly well out there. Um, the other workplace racism incidents really have to do with travel, and I wanted to uh, talk to people, uh, ask people to at some point to speak about this. But I just had quite a few incidences. And speaking of terroristic white women, um, this past Wednesday, I was walking, uh, going to the train um, to catch the train, the subway train to go uh, get ready on my way home, and the there was a a train. And there were people on the platform walking in. So I was crossing from a train that let me off across the platform. And there was this very tall white woman. And as I'm going to get on the train, because I'm, I'm in, in the area, so it's kind of like a malformed line that, as people are walking in. And she's to the left of me. Mm-hmm. And she literally, like, shoves me out the way or attempts to shove me out the way to get on the train. So I push her, and I push her very forcefully, and I proceed to curse her out, and I call her all kinds of expletives, and I said, you act just like your ancestors, your savages. And I said, why couldn't you just wait in the line like an orderly person? But I said, then again, you're not really a person. You, you know, you don't even know how to function as a human being. And then I just turned around, and um, she, she, you know, she was mumbling some nonsense, and I just told her, shut her damn mouth, because I was really at the point of potentially um, reaching out and touching someone and I didn't want to do that because I already shoved her halfway across the train because I was just fed up and I was just ag- agitated. So I just um, called every name I could call her and call her and her ancestors the animals that they are. Then the other incident I had was there was uh, early in the morning, uh, had it been uh, maybe six, yeah, about six, 30 minutes to seven. And I'm going to the subway from the Jersey Transit, and there's a white woman swiping her Metro card, and obviously the card is damaged or something, so it's not working with whatever money she has left on there. So she has the nerve to tell me, ask me, um, sir, would you please swipe me through, and I will give you cash for your for your swipe because my card's not working. I looked at her like she was a piece of turd from under my shoe, swiped my card, and kept it moving. That's the other incident. Then there was another one um, in which uh, I was walking through the corridor, and it just goes to show how entitled they feel. Walking through the corridor, I mean, not the corridor, I'm on the way to the train station from work, just got out of my job, and there's a white woman, literally, I could see her from a distance, asking me something. And I had, I was listening to, um, to my headphones, and I just looked there because she really thought, it was, it was just from the way she looked at me and her body language, because I do study that, that she really thought that she was going to be able to stop me on my way to the train station to ask me whatever retarded question she was going to ask me. So I looked at her like she was dirt from under my shoe and kept walking. And I just noticed that white people, I mean, you really, beyond just working with them, just in traveling, they have this entitled feeling, and it's the smallest things, the smallest indignities to me that have the biggest impact. So when, like I said, when I leave my house, I walk around with, with the mentality that I'm at war, they're at war with me, and I, I don't move. If I'm walking in a particular path, I don't move out the way. I keep walking, and they have to walk around me. I don't help them. I don't do anything for them. I don't speak to them, and I tell them, get as far away from me as possible if they attempt to speak to me. And these are the incidences that I deal with. So now to go to what... 
I heard on the archive episode that changed my life, workplace racism. You always talked about white friends. And I remember in one episode, I don't know, you might remember because your memory is impeccable. You said if black people, all black people who associate with white people go through all of your experiences with this white person and you guarantee at some point you're going to find something racist. And I remember when you said that, I didn't really indulge it at first. This is when I first started listening to the show. And um, because I like to just go through the archives, and I'm still going through them, but I got through quite a few. And um, one day, because I only have one quote-unquote white friend, and he he's an independent filmmaker. He does documentaries. Um, he's done a, quite a bit of uh, work to fight against racism, things like that. And he's the only white person that I associate with. I never made it a point to have tons and tons of white friends in the first place. But as an adult, I really didn't associate with them until I encountered him and I was introduced to him by a black female that I used to work with. So that is the only reason I even started to deal with him. Otherwise, I probably would have had no white friends at the time I encountered the show, but he was the one. And over time, he had tried to get me to work with him on different film projects and I just things just didn't gel. So he was working on an independent film and in the film... Um, he wanted me to make an appearance, and I'm not really an actor per se. I've done music, performing, hip-hop, producing, that kind of stuff, but I've never really been into the acting thing. So he talked me into it. I said, okay, I'll do it. So in the film, the premise of the film is essentially this white male moves from Kansas to uh, New York City. He comes to New York City. He's a guy who indulges in uh, smoking weed recreationally, and he connects with a Latino drug dealer that he goes regularly to see to get weed from. So um, as he as he gets settled into New York, he starts to learn um, about some of the other drug dealers that associate with the drug dealer he buys his drugs from, and somehow he gets they get into a situation where the drug dealer goes to rob another drug dealer. And by the end of the movie, the guy, white guy who moves from Kansas, and this guy is the main character played by my quote-unquote white friend, he ends up with the drug operation of the, the Latino guy and the cousin who he used to buy drugs from. So everybody ends up dead by the end of the movie. The white guy who moves from Kansas becomes the guy that's on top, basically that's about to start his own uh, marijuana drug operation. So I happen to be one of the peripheral quote-unquote, uh, drug dealers that he gets weed from. So I remember when I first talked to my wife about this uh, this acting situation, she said she felt uncomfortable. Mind you, in that instance, she was more codified than I was because I'm looking at him as, you know, looking at it as just a film project, and this is my white friend. Not really my white friend, but just my friend. That's how I looked at him. I didn't really consider that aspect of it at that time. I knew he was white. We talked about um, so-called white privilege and all the benefits he gets from being white. So we had a lot of uh, intense racial racial conversations and things like that. So at that point, I was really, quote-unquote, comfortable with him. So anyway, she didn't feel right about it, but somehow I convinced her to... Um, convinced her to, she was okay with it by the time we were done, and she also was in, in, in the movie as well. So... Um, and in hindsight, I was like, wow, I should have really taken your advice, but I wasn't, wasn't my, in my right African mind at that time. So um, not fully anyway. So anyway, uh, when, you, when you said that, take an account of your entire history with the, whatever white people you associate with, and I guarantee you at least find one, at least one incidence of racism. So like I said, we've had a lot of conversations about race and things like this, and um, very intense. He's, I, I've heard many stories from other non-white people that he knows 
where he's come to the defense of uh, black people when white people have assumed just carte blanche that he was quote-unquote racist, and he's called them out publicly, things like that. So all of this stuff served to uh, get my defenses down at that time. So when I thought about it in hindsight, and you and I went through my whole relationship, I could not find any racist incidences until I thought about the movie. And just the fact that of me doing the movie and me playing this peripheral drug dealer is perpetuating white supremacy by me representing the stereotypical racist white supremacist image of the black male as the criminal hustling uh, marijuana. And I have lots. So all of that went all, it was like the biggest wealthy moment ever. And as that dawned on me, and the fact that there's so many black people who associate with white people who might be in filmmaking or might be in some form of entertainment, that's what I call it, because at that moment I entered the containment of his white supremacist ideology through this film, but I wasn't um, codified enough to make the right decision. Thank God my wife was thinking right, and I said, this is the way we have to function together when I brought this to her attention. So I immediately stopped associating with him. When I thought about that, I immediately, I haven't had any contact with him since that has dawned on me. The only person that I've talked to about this outside of my wife is Thomas in New York when we met each other. And it was something that I wanted to bring up just to help people to think whoever of us associate with white people, there's so many ways that racism, white supremacy functions on a subconscious um, cancerous level that we're not always, always perceptive of the effect that our interactions with these people can have. And the fact that literally any contact with white people can be detrimental, even just traveling to and from work. And this is something I've learned more emphatically and just working in New York has really upped my warrior consciousness when I'm traveling to and from work or wherever I am, where I'm surrounded by white people and being at that job has just really solidified for me. And it, it, it just, it, it really infuses in me an understanding that every single white person I will ever come into contact with is a racist white supremacist. And I hope this story helps someone else. Somebody else might have a story similar to that. But I also wanted to ask at some point, I know it's late, um, what people's experiences are traveling to and from work with white people and the types of uh, seemingly innocuous everyday racist incidences will come across similar to the ones I described. Thank you for listening to me. And I didn't mean to uh, keep you so long, but thank you for taking my call. For sure. No helping white people. I know that uh, gets stated a lot on the program uh, and it's, it's simply because there's so much uh, conditioning. And I mean, like centuries of grooming us to think and function in a manner that is going to aid, assist white terrorists. Uh, so really, and, and because a lot of us, myself included, uh, just, you know, reflecting upon our own experiences and being able to see how, wow, even though we talk about white supremacy on a consistent basis and recognize that this is a major problem that even we still have those tendencies. Uh, it's, it's almost reflexive where we're not even thinking about it uh, to help that white person. Oh, sure. I'll swipe you and get you on the subway. Oh, sure. You need $5. Sure. No thing. Here you go. Whatever. You know, it might be no ketchup. I think that was what someone said. They were in the store and the white person just expected that they would assist. That's what niggers do. Uh, and they almost complied. But it took a second for it to uh, just come back to them that this is a system of white supremacy. And we should, to the best of our ability, make every effort not to help whites. So definitely want to continue to repeat that. And glad uh, your counter racist training uh, was there. Uh, I will say, and uh, I've had uh, people give pushback uh, on this when they uh, have talked about counterviolence uh, in, in any situation, even if, if it's something as uh, I will say as a minimal, not in terms of killing someone or pulling out a, a machete or, you know, 
a rifle or a handgun, but just shoving a white person. Uh, I think any time uh, where there has to be any sort of uh, physical counteraction dealing with whites, uh, I take those situations very seriously because that sort of I mean, that's what happened with Tulsa, Oklahoma, as it's been reported. In fact, it was it was a bump of a white person that led to a whole town of black people uh, being murdered, terrorized, uh, property stolen, uh, that sort of thing. I take very seriously and I, I just encourage uh, listeners. Uh, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates, he has a section in uh between the world and me, where he was on the subway in New York, no less, where I think it was a white woman. I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was a white woman shoved his black son, his young son, and he got upset with her. And it was, I won't say the term, but it was a whole team of racists rallied to her defense. And he felt like it could have got really bad quickly uh, because he responded as any uh, self-respecting attempted black parent would what are you doing touching my son? What are you doing shoving my child? Uh, and it, obviously this is a white woman. I've said this consistently. Nobody can rally racists to violence and terrorism better than white women. And sometimes it could just be one white woman. So uh, certainly, uh, you know, whatever you make, uh, we all make the best choices that we can. And certainly when you've been mistreated by a white person, we all, you know, if you, what, whatever you feel is, is the best course of action to take, but that is just one that I would encourage that can, that can end up being the last day on earth uh, for those type of situations. If the wrong person sees it, if another white person, you never know, it could be an undercover enforcement official. Who do you think you are shoving this white woman? You know, we've got a uh, situation here and we got to call all the transit authorities to come and shackle a black person up and, and beat them to death and put some charges on them or whatever. So I just, I say that because those sorts of things happen on a regular basis where something just that minor can end up being a huge incident. Uh, and that, I mean, can I say something to that? Long history. Uh, is it going to be brief? Yes, it's very brief. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, what I wanted to say is I remember uh, Dr. Welsing saying on the program that um, that racists know who which black people they can pull certain things on, and I truly believe that because there were quite a few white males on the train who did not react whatsoever. They minded their business, and weirdly enough, when I've gotten into similar incidences with white people in the past, um, it's been the same reaction. I'm not saying that, that it can't change at some point, and I'm consciously aware of that, but I don't tolerate disrespect from white people. So I totally understand what you're saying, and for other people it might be that way, but I've had quite a few experiences like that, and like I said, um, and that, on that, in that incident, there were quite a few white males, and they, I, looked, I looked, gave everyone a look, and they didn't, didn't budge. And I was ready to deal with that if that was the case, but I totally understand where you're coming from. Thank you. Right on. And we've had other listeners, they take the same approach that, you know, they they are not going to tolerate certain things. I have no uh, argument or disagreement with that. I just encourage folks to keep that in mind. This, you know, whatever you uh, whatever course of action that you take, particularly if it is going to involve any sort of uh, physical contact with a white person. This could be my last day on Earth if you're comfortable with that. And some of the folks that I've talked to have said they are comfortable with that proceed no problem but that at least should be uh considered because it happens a lot i think a lot more frequently than than we are aware of and and a lot of times we even after everything is done uh like wow i cannot believe that things uh spiral to that point and it, it happens a lot uh under this system uh, i guess my the only other comment i would add generally whites uh 
they will generally try you uh, at some point. That's been my experience. That's what the system of white supremacy is all about, in my experience. Uh, we will eventually uh, make it a point of, of trying each and, and every single non-white person on the planet. That's what we're about. So uh, I would just keep that for something to think about. Uh, we will be back uh, this week. We should have a Ben Tillman sighting uh, this week. Uh, white pers- uh, professor uh, Vernon Burton. Uh, he is at Clemson, Mr. Tillman's alma mater, co-founder. Uh, he was recommended a couple of weeks back by the white author that we had on the program about his study about uh, racial classifications in South Carolina, where they apparently had a lot of white people who were raping black people. And you ended up with a class of people where it was I guess there was some confusion about whether or not they were classified as white or not white. And so he wrote this uh, whole book about that. But of course, since he is a historian on South Carolina history uh, and the, uh, the town that this happens is Edgefield, which is Ben Tillman's uh, backyard. He, of course, knows quite a bit about Ben Tillman. When I contacted him, uh, he was just giving a talk on Ben Tillman. He sent me the report that he gave uh, that was just a couple days ago. So I'm sure we'll make time to talk about Ben Tillman, Dylan Stormroof, and uh, his continued legacy in South Carolina. But he should be here. uh, It's either Wednesday or Thursday. He gave me the option to pick a day, and I'm still trying to decide uh, because we might have other programs. So it'll be one of those days uh, this week. He should be here, Vernon Burton. Uh, We should also have John Patash in Next Sunday, a week from tomorrow, uh, again, I'm extremely excited to have him back with us. Uh, his latest book uh, about how drugs are being weaponized and used against us, I would submit non-white people in particular, but I will be very eager to hear his thoughts about the uh, increasing push to legalize everything. It's no big deal. The drug war has failed uh, to get his thoughts on that. And particularly because that is his profession. He is a drug counselor by trade, which he's been doing for many, many years, in addition to his uh, other writings on racism, white supremacy. But he should be with us uh, next Sunday. If you have gripes, complaints, questions, uh, suggestions for guests, what have you, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com uh, if, there, if I have a delay in getting back to you or what have you and again sometimes stuff just gets uh, sp- uh, sent to spam or whatever other racist appearance might be happening feel free to drop an email again just to make sure I got it if uh, if you have not heard back but thanks from all the folks who have shared and contributed news reports and uh, all the other guest suggestions and what have you and hopefully we can knock things down in due time Uh, We will be back uh, later in the week. Thanks for folks investing their Saturday evening. I hope it has been a constructive uh, investment of your time and energy. Uh, Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, I know it's getting warmer and folks want to go out, have a good time. Under these conditions, you do not want to be behind the wheel, driver, passenger, pedestrian, and have the unfortunate experience of a Daniel Holtzclaw Darren Wilson, Danielle Holtzclaw, pulling up, blinking lights, and I mean, they can ruin your life, even end your life in about five minutes, less than that sometimes. Uh, You really want to make sure that you're clear thinking, lucid, so you can make the best possible decisions, uh, keep yourself as safe as possible, and any other people that you might be responsible for. Uh, Buckle up as well. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's it. Uh, We'll be back. Uh, Thanks again for everyone tuning in. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times. 
in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.